it was a thing of waiting to see when Buffalo was going to have their day in the news. Holding her husband's hand, Fragrance Harris Danfield recounted the moments after someone started shooting inside the top supermarket on Saturday. The customer service lead works in the store with her 20-year-old daughter who became separated in the chaos. She crouched down. She sat hiding at register six the entire time. She didn't come out until the police came. She was in the store. The day before the shooting, Lewis actually talked with the shooter for over an hour. I gave my benefit card, my um, keys to have the um, my um, bonus plus card. He went in and bought himself a, a, a Gatorade, gave me my things back. Everything was okay. We sat and talked, and I'm like, well, what are you going to do after this? Now, Peyton Gendron told Lewis he planned to go hiking after they were done talking. And before they stopped talking, he said, Are you going to be here tomorrow? I said, yeah, I'm going to be here at 5. He came at 2.30. But Lewis was at Tops on Saturday at 2.30 when Gendron arrived. Gunshots. Officials were quick to label the shooting as racially motivated because the suspect reportedly posted a 180-page rant detailing the planning of the killings and attributing it to white supremacy. Gendron hails from Conklin, New York, which is in Broome County, upstate. He had one previous encounter with police when he threatened to shoot up his own graduation at Susquehanna Valley High School. Records show he was taken in for mental evaluation last year, but not arrested. The attack live streamed online, centered on a theory that white people are being replaced. That's according to a 180-page document found online believed to be written by the alleged shooter months ago. So why was it not forwarded to police? When you talk to people on Jefferson Avenue, you get a range of reactions and a range of theories. But there's one common denominator. Everybody is angry. I feel it's a the shame that uh, the Buffalo police haven't did anything about this. Uh, most black men in the neighborhood I really fear walking around now. They don't know when they can come out day or night. But there's also a stark double standard in policing here, because when faced with the deadliest shooting of the year and a suspect who is literally still holding a gun used to allegedly kill 10 innocent people. Well, at that moment, police were at the highest possible legal threshold for firing a weapon, for using deadly force. And they didn't. By contrast, two months ago, Buffalo police used deadly force on Dominique Thomas, shooting him when he had a mental health episode and was reportedly seen with a knife. Last year, Buffalo police used deadly force to shoot at Willie Henley, a 60-year-old homeless man who was accused of swinging a bat at an officer. Neither of those people had a gun. Neither were accused of killing a person, let alone 10 people moments before. But... They were both black. Yo, man, they gotta stop this stuff, man. I'm serious. They come out here and they're gonna kill people up, right? They're doing all this. The police department ain't doing too much about it, I guess. Ain't caught nobody yet. If it was a black I mean, man, he would have I mean, been yeah, under the jail. Been That's under all the I jail. can say. We've been under the jail. The state has suspended without pay a corrections officer suspected of crudely mocking the victims of Saturday's massacre at a Tops Markets in Buffalo in a despicable social media meme. The State Department of Corrections and Community Supervision said it was seeking to terminate the employee, who was not identified in a series of department tweets. However, screen grabs that circulated widely online indicated the meme was initially shared by someone named Greg Foster. State payroll records show Gregory C. Foster, too, is a corrections officer at the Attica Correctional Facility, 
earning $185,482 in 2020. The offensive meme shows a photo of a Topps Markets above the words, Clean up on aisle 3, no wait 4, also on 7, 9, and 13. Foster punctuated the meme with the comment, too soon? This should weed out some FB friends, followed by a laughing emoji. A white supremacist is accused of driving more than 200 miles from the southern tier to Buffalo to kill as many black people as possible in Buffalo. A Buffalo 911 dispatcher is off the job tonight for her handling of a call from someone inside the top store during that shooting. The Erie County Executive says the woman has been placed on administrative leave and he's aiming for her firing. County Executive Mark Polinkar says the call came from inside the tops, Jefferson Avenue, and the caller was whispering, so the shooter could not hear her. That caller says the dispatcher hung up on her, although polling cars could not confirm who hung up first. Still, the county executive says what happened on this call was inappropriate and unacceptable. A wooden cross was set afire tonight at the corner of Brunswick and Jefferson. We arrived as Buffalo firefighters were dousing the flames. Councilman Herb Bellamy said he was shocked by this latest incident. I really don't know what to say at this point. So close. Uh, this going to frighten the community more now, I think. I really don't know what to say. This is the first time I ever saw a cross burning in my life. This was cold. It was calculated. It was cruel. It was very intentional. This neighborhood was targeted because of the high black population. And that's what's so chilling. How cool can she be? She's from Buffalo. And what's wrong with Buffalo? <laughs> Context of white supremacy. Gusty Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Monday, June 27, 2022. So I have been told. Uh, let's see, we should be here on Thursday, mandatory for the book club, uh, normal time, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific, Catherine Pelinero's Absolute Madness. Uh, looking forward to continue. We're not even halfway through the book yet uh, in terms of all the information that is going to come up, things that we have talked about. Today's broadcast hopefully will emphasize why that information is so important, especially since so many people seem to be not well informed about what happened in Buffalo, 1980. Anywho, uh, we are the syllabus, the context of white supremacy with regards to the events in Buffalo, the top shooting, why that happened, placing that in context. We are the syllabus. Uh, so for folks who you just started listening and all the rest of it, so we had Matt Greider on the program, 50 years of journalism at the Buffalo News. He covered the 1980 killings of black people in Buffalo for the Buffalo News and wrote a book about it, Joey 22. He was a guest on the program on so-called Memorial Day. We had Anna Blotto uh, as a guest on the program, white researcher resident said she was born and raised in Buffalo did her report while in grad school 
uh, on the history of so-called segregation in Buffalo. Uh, we had the author of Hooded Nights on the Niagara, the Ku Klux Klan in Buffalo, New York, uh, Dr. Sean Lay. Uh, he was a guest on the program, was that last week? About the last 10 days, he was a guest on the broadcast. In addition to today's broadcast, there is more to come. Even matter of fact, this week, the book club, yes, that you know counts, of course, but even more guests to come about the history of racism, white supremacy in Buffalo to better understand these events, and we should be working on Conklin as well. Now, for our broadcast for today, uh, important for so many reasons. In fact, I will do the uh, rewind. There have been so many slaughters and what have you of black people throughout the history of white supremacy racism. It's difficult to recall them all, but they are all important. So just a couple days ago, June 17, journalist victim of white terrorism, Grayson Doctor, black female, her mother, the Reverend DePayne Middleton Doctor, she is one of the nine victims of the Charleston AME massacre. Uh, Mother AME Massacre, Charleston, South Carolina in 2015. Uh, Miss Grayson Doctor, she said, direct quote, the Charleston church shooting is one shooting that, I mean, people, I'm not going to say that they totally forgot. I don't think people forgot about it at all. But I don't think we remember it as often as we should, you know, and especially considering the historical context around it and even I and I even thought about this with the Buffalo shooting the most recent one because the Uvalde shooting happened so quickly right afterwards that it was almost like we forgot not forgot but like just moved on so quickly to the next thing when I mean sometimes you can't help it like those happen back to back I don't know I think that is one of the most challenging things because you don't want your loved ones to be forgotten about. And in my mom's case, something that like that happened to the black community, you know, like we were all affected by that. And you don't want that to be forgotten. You know, I don't want that to be another thing like that goes down in black history that we never talk about or never teach about. That is very common in the system of white supremacy. Now, she was saying that seeming like it's already kind of receding a little bit, maybe South Carolina, that that's 2015. She was also saying, dang, it's also seeming like Buffalo from May of 2022 is kind of receding. Joseph G. Christopher and all those black males that got killed way back in 1980—distant memory, like it never happened. That's also, in my view, a part of why these events keep happening. To give more detail on the importance, uh, and to speak to someone with lots of personal connections. To the area, so I was doing my research, the book club, all these different cases and what have you, trying to find as much material as possible. Uh, and in doing that research, I found the book uh, that we're discussing today, Rendered Invisible. Now, anyone who you know has listened to the cows any length of time, like, oh man, Ralph Ellison, 
we read that in the book club. One of my favorite books all time, top 10. So thankful that we got an opportunity to read it. And so, so early, like, oh man, Invisible Man and this is talking about? Hmm, I'm not a big fiction fan, but hey, there aren't really a lot of books about this case. And I mean, hey, we are reading one of the books about this case in the book club, Matt Greida. We had him as a guest on the program. We talked about his book, Joey 22. Both of those books were published after this one. So at the time this book was published, rendered invisible, this was basically the only published text on these killings. Now that is some black male privilege for you. Our guest for today's broadcast, uh, in addition to writing the book, we are going to chat about, again, rendered invisible, stories of black and whites, blacks and whites, love and death, published in 2010 about the killings in Buffalo series. It's fictional series of uh, short stories uh, about the killings. Uh, in Buffalo, and then a few additional notes as well, all about white supremacy racism. In addition to writing this text, uh, he is the director of the Johnson Black Cultural Center at Vanderbilt University. Uh, he teaches creative writing at Fisk University. Real pleasure to have him on the broadcast. Joining us live, Dr. Frank E. Dobson, Jr. Dr. Dobson, are you with us, sir? I am, sir. Thank you. Thank you so much for hanging out, sharing a little bit of your summer evening. Uh, we're pleased to have you with us. Uh, for folks, this might be their first time hearing from you, hearing about your book, the work that you do. Uh, just kind of giving us a brief intro. Any info that you think would be important for listeners to know about who you are and the work you do? I think the first thing to say is that um, the book is fiction, but it's historical fiction. Uh, and, and if you've read the book, you see that the details of the killings uh, of the brothers who were killed in Buffalo are given chronologically right out of the newspaper and the police reports and all of that. Um, the second thing is that I'm a homeboy. I grew up in Buffalo, all over the city, but for a time lived on Kingsley Street, which is the street before, if you're coming from downtown, before Riley. And, and the tops is on the corner, basically, of Riley and Jefferson. I could walk to Jefferson from my, when, my, when we lived there, 19 Kingsley, in about uh, two minutes. And if I was running a minute, and probably to where that tops is, a five-minute run. I was about 13 years old at the time, and I could have run back. Um, been to the Merriweather Library across the street there when the book came out. So this is my community. I grew up in those streets. I grew up on the east side of Buffalo, went to church there, played ball there, went to school 53 around the corner, went to the library on Northampton Street or East Utica around the corner from there. So that's my neighborhood. Um, and so this hit me deeply. And in the same way, and then I'll stop here because um, I'm sure you have some questions. Uh, the, the, the reign of terror, the 22 caliber hit me deeply because at the time, I wasn't living in, in, in Buffalo. I had left, go to college in, in, in a way, and I was, I was working um, in Ohio at the time, and I was going to go back for something, a reunion of my high school. And, and during the time of the 22 caliber killer, my, my parents said, my mom said, don't come back right now, Frankie. They're killing brothers. They're killing black men. I don't want my son on the streets right now. 
So this is real for me in, in a way that, um, you know, I can feel it. I mourn for it. I, 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 I've known some, I knew some of the victims, not only of the most recent killing, um, and I can talk about that. I knew a couple of the victims. My family did. But I met um, and knew some of the, the, the victims, uh, well, the family members of the victims of the 1980 killing. So it's deeply personal for me. Again, this is my home. is context for you uh that right there why i said man we should get dr dobson on the program uh because and exactly as he stated it is in the book verbatim sometimes he's quoting the exact titles from the newspaper reports uh, and it's presented chronologically uh in the order that the murders uh happened during the 1980s or early uh, 1981 as well uh so absolutely and i mean it it Definitely, Rick James. It comes through. This is someone who has deep personal connections to Buffalo. Absolutely. Uh, two minutes from the story. It even took me a moment. The disgrace of it. It took me a moment to say, "Wait a minute." Oh, he means the tops, the most recent tops, not the tops that's no longer there where Glenn Dunn was killed. And I think, as we looked at it, I think the distance yeah, of those yeah, two sites. Yeah is about three miles even though they're not there you could probably also walk that one if you got 15 minutes hey there you go walking tour of buffalo history Um, exactly exactly my friend for folks who have not seen you this is their first time hearing you you're a well i think you already said it but just making sure you're a black male is that correct black male brother yes sir Born and raised in in the Nickel City, uh, all over the hood, played ball up and down the streets, played football, ran track, uh, marched in marching band, sang in choirs, Church of God in Christ. I could go on. Yeah. Rick James, right on. Rick James, um, yes, sir. <laughs> he And he will, oh my God, for people, please do not ever think Gus T is just messing around, wasting time on the program like even when I, every time this year when I have mentioned Rick James, it has been so important. <laughs> We've been talking about Rick James all year long. Ugh. Anyway, uh, for this program, we always start off with definitions and use someone who teaches creative writing. Ugh. Love talking to people who write. Uh, since this is all about uh, white supremacy, racism, do you have a definition that you use for the term racism, Dr. Dobson? You know, you know, it's it's about subjugation. It's about power. It's about the imposition of the manifestation of I am in, in superior and you are inferior. I mean, there's so many people that that have defined it other ways. But again, you, you know, I, I think the other thing, my brother, that I would say is that for me, growing up black, inner city, working class in Buffalo, you know, I'm I'm thinking of that book. Um, you know, uh, always outnumbered, always outgunned. And, and, and the notion is that they got the guns, they've got the power, and they also have this demonic, diabolical sense of superiority that, you know, causes them to continue to manifest their hatred and fear. And those are the twin polarities, I think, of, of, of racism. Hatred and fear. It's both. Oh, my goodness. Quite a bit of that in this case wowzers uh okay let's see um yeah man start get down to the details we can cover as much as we can 
And uh, when you answer this question, this is twofold. So not only do you give your response, give the answer, but comment on the utter failure. Because I think in our email correspondence, you also told me that everyone has failed this test on your end as well. So the question for Dr. Dobson, this should be like, I mean, talk about basketball. I am giving you an alley-oop. I mean, wow. 360, hang on the rim, all the way. So the question who is Joseph G. Christopher? Now, the historical context for this program, we started talking about Joseph G. Christopher on May 15. We started wow. a book club on, I'd have to look at the calendar, but whatever that Thursday is, so that would be probably like May 20. We started our book club on Absolute Madness, the timing. Oh, that is all about Joseph G. Christopher and these killings published in 2017. So not even a week passed. And we started talking about Joseph G. Christopher and have been talking about him ever since. So in that time, we have talked to white people, non-white people, and I can even be extremely explicit. We've talked to white history professors who taught at the University of Buffalo and have published books on the history of racism and KKK activity in Buffalo no one has known anything about Joseph G. Christopher. In fact, one of our guests, Anna Blotto, I sent her the article where they mentioned a sentence about him in connection to last month's shootings. Not very much, but one sentence. She didn't even do the deep research. She's a researcher, born in Buffalo. She didn't even dig. What? All this happened? To get any additional information, everyone that we've asked I have no idea who that is, why that's relevant to what happened last month. Dr. Dobson, will you be the first? Who is Joseph G. Christopher? He was a 22 caliber killer, a white pathological racist who uh, killed 13 black men. I mean, one of, one of the dark-skinned Hispanics that he killed in New York he thought was black. In upstate New York, in Buffalo, in Niagara Falls, near Rochester, and then in New York City, he was known as a 22 caliber killer. He was a white G.I., from Buffalo, um, who came up and tried to incite a race war by killing black men, and he almost succeeded in in starting the race war. The one and only A plus. What what do you think of? We have people who taught at the University of Buffalo were there in the eighties. They didn't know anything about this either. What is that? And I think you said that you asked some of your colleagues at Vanderbilt and they all got F's as well. Is that correct? That is correct. That is correct. Now, my students would know because actually uh, when I was at Fisk, I, I, I was teaching there for a while. The book was taught there. A colleague of mine at, at Vanderbilt did teach my book in the class. But I think the problem is, my friend, that the Buffalo killing is so real and so raw that people do not want to touch it. I contacted a very prestigious friend of mine, a Vanderbilt PhD, Harvard Law School, who has a syndicated column, who wrote something about Buffalo. And I'm like, we friends, we've known each other for 20 years. I'm going to hit you with, you know, your column is good, but you forgot Buffalo in terms of the killings in 1980. You're talking about these. And never heard back. And I think it's because of the fact that, again, 
you grow up black, much of the time you grow up feeling like Moses said, always outnumbered, always outgunned. You know about racism. We've talked about racism, but you also grow up and kind of feeling as though I'm less than. I'm looked at in the pejorative. And I think that's what happened to Buffalo, because when I worked on this book, my friend, I looked at not only the Buffalo killings, but they were happening at the same time as the Atlanta child murders. So there's a point at which people from Atlanta, Georgia, and Buffalo, New York are coming together to talk about this genocide that's happening in 1980. The killings overlapped. The Atlanta killings continued into 81. Um, and so Atlanta got a lot of attention. Buffalo got very less attention. There's a movie about, about, about Atlanta. CNN did something about Atlanta. By the way, when my book came out, I wrote CNN, and I never heard back from them. So I think it's, it's, it's about the visceral nature of this killing, kind of like what happened at Mother Emanuel. We don't want to touch it. Is racism that bad? Well, hell yeah, it's that bad, because that's what it did to this community. When you talk about Glenda, I mean, a 14-year-old boy sitting in a car, I, I can go on and on, but I think that's part of it. I, I think it hits, it hits America square in the face and says, this is what you've wrought, and you haven't solved it yet. Context of white supremacy. Having to sit with both parts of that, like, wow, he said a colleague that he's known for decades uh, that he contacted, and not with some gibberish, like you know, you you forgot the part about ET because he did land in Buffalo, brother. You got to get not that. Like this is serious. Like, hey, killing before more than a dozen black people killed that we know of. Could I mean? Make sure we include that the tops buffer. I mean, the tops grocery store angle and everything. Anything to respond? That's, no, not, I mean, not not a response. Not a response. I brought this up with Matt Greider. He worked at the Buffalo News for fifty years, and I said, "Hey, uh, the Buffalo News covered this case extensively. They have extensively. He, uh, Mr. Greider himself. You, they could have brought you back. Hey." You wrote for us for 50 years. Come and, you know, make sure that you connect these two events and all of that. The, the grocery store angle and East Buffalo and blah, 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 and all that. Come in and do that. No. The New York Times, they covered the 1980 killings extensively. Part of that happened in New York. Said the Manhattan slasher or the Midtown slasher. The Midtown slasher. The Midtown yeah. slasher. Yes, sir. They covered this extensively. The New York Times could have done a really nice write-up. They could have linked to some of their old archival material and connected it to nothing like that. I've pointed that out consistently. I don't view that as what they are being irresponsible with regards to journalism. I view that as deliberate white supremacy racism. I'm very sure there are some people who are still working at those institutions. Matt Greider, or at least have an ear, as they say, they could have easily... <laughs> The other part of it. Well, oh, go ahead, sir. No, no you know, and, and, and when and, and when when my book came out, um, my first book, the race not given was was reviewed in the Buffalo News. My second book wasn't. This one wasn't. But I was on television, the local channel ABC affiliate. There, I did a talk at the Mary Weather Library, right across the street from there, and across the street from the Buffalo Challenger. There was write-ups in the Challenger. I went to University of Buffalo, where I got my undergraduate degree, and did a talk for the African-American Studies program. So there should be somebody out there that knows about it. 
But I, I think I think what this speaks about, my friend, is that there's a network. You know, we talk about racism, but there's a network of racism. You go, well, yeah, we're talking about the KKK. No, it's more diabolical than the KKK because you can kind of say, OK, it's just them. But there's a network that has to do with a network of spirit that these people are less than we are. These people can be killed capriciously. And I was just reading an article last week, my friend, where it talks about the other piece, and this is why it's so personal for me, is because of the fact that there's a great deal of redlining of grocery stores in that neighborhood. Now, how I wrote this book is I was going back home. I was living at the time in Ohio when I started the book and then finished it at Van- while I was at Vandy, Vanderbilt. And I was going back home to care for my parents who lived not too far from the tops on Main Street, but you know, I grew up in, in the area of, 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 of the tops on Jefferson, and my parents, once we left, moved to another place. But the whole point was they shopped at tops. My sister lived on Welker near Ferry, which is not too far from there, shopped at that tops, got cousins who shopped at that tops. A related kind of second by, by, to the Salter, who was the, the, the cop who was shot through my cousins by marriage. Um, so I'm saying that to say that this situation is really about this network of saying, and a spiritual network, if you will, they are less than, we don't give a damn about them, and we are going to make sure, one, that they don't have the resources that they need. Who doesn't need a grocery store within walking distance, particularly if you're working class? And so I, I, I think we have to, we have to look at, the aftermath of this killing, not only in terms of these killings, not only in terms of connecting the dots, but also in terms of what now for this neighborhood. My wife and I, I go back to Buffalo every year, and I always go back. I was born around the 4th of July, so I'm going back in, on uh, this Friday. I'm going to be there for about four days. Um, but I'm wondering, if I were still living back home, I would never go big, back in that grocery store again. It's a killing field. Tear the damn thing down. That's what they're doing with the school in uh, Uvalde, tearing it down. I think that's what they did in uh, Sandy Hook. Uh, you, you, hey, who, exactly as you said, who wants to go back with that sort of energy? And it's not like we're talking about this was a world-class grocery store to begin with anyway, the comparisons that I've heard. Exactly, exactly, exactly. <laughs> you know, they've said it's it's like a, a large version of 7-Eleven. So, yeah, why not tear it down? put a monument there and and in fact two monuments one to just you know make sure we do not forget and then a really spectacular affordable grocery store that can be the other monument and make sure we don't forget either but that might be yeah mm-hmm. Go ahead. yeah you know because because again and i'm sorry i mean because again the, you know the, the reason for the title of the book was when I, I was going back home, back and forth to care for my parents, uh, living in Ohio, and that's how I started writing the book, probably in about 2007 or eight. I, I don't know, you know, finishing in 2010. But the point was I started looking at the Buffalo News, as you said, the Buffalo Challenger, the New York Times, and the Boston Globe, surprisingly, did a really good job of covering. And that's where I got, you know, the, the information, the facts, and then I add the fictional veneer. But the thing is, this this community it's almost as though what is the worth of this community? What is the worth of these lives? And the reason I, I chose the title Rendered Invisible, as you say, it's because of the inspiration of Ralph Ellison's Invisible Man, 
But I'm also influenced by Richard Wright's uh, short stories, Eight Men, where he's looking at these black men who have basically over and over again are fighting against racism and, and degradation, fighting against the odds. And I said, the victims of this killing spree were rendered invisible because nobody seemed to give a damn. And the sad thing is nobody still, it, it still seems to be the same way. You know, and, and, so, and so that's the reason for the title, that these people were simply rendered invisible. We don't care about them. We don't even want to cover their story. They don't merit much more than a day or two worth, worth of, of, of attention. Context of white supremacy, Dr. Frank E. Dobson, Jr. Uh, one of the things in going back and researching this case, uh, two points. The first one, I think, at least to me, it seems there are several reasons why the New York Times, your colleague that you reached out to, uh, why individuals, white people, I think, would not want to bring this case up, especially not in any detail. Like I said, the Buffalo News, they mentioned Christopher, but it was only like a sentence, which is a disgrace for everything that they could have said. This is the Atlanta Constitution. It wasn't even the Atlanta Journal-Constitution at the time. From uh, August 22, 1983, Chet Fuller, black male journalist. So he says, Buffalo is now a city of fear. I've not been to Buffalo, New York in two years, but still, it scares me. It is a bleak city, an aging one with rutted streets and once grand buildings going to seed, physical declines which parallel its crippling breakdown in race relations and an almost total erosion of trust and cooperation between its black community and its predominantly white police force. When I was there, nearly everywhere I went, I picked up on a foreboding sense of decay and despair. Unemployment was high, particularly amongst blacks who make up more than 25% of the city's population and are mainly confined to the old central section of the city, the site of Buffalo's worst slums. It was a particularly gloomy time, the spring of 1981, college days, in the midst of widespread panic generated by a puzzling series of slayings of black men. Because the seven victims were shot with a small caliber pistol, the media dubbed the mysterious assailant as the 22 caliber killer and a kind of gruesome lore sprang up around this mystery man exacerbating the tension between the black and white communities hate literature was distributed throughout the city in the form of licenses to hunt coons and back to Africa boat tickets on the coon Hard ship line. Black police officers reported seeing composite drawings of the murder suspect on bulletin boards in some of the city's precinct offices with My Hero and Man of the Year written under them. I'll stop there, although Mr. Fuller has a lot of great things to say. Uh, there are lots of reports like this, in addition to the cross burning and then the black people getting guns, uh, killing a white man, Terrence Mills, using rocks to pelt vehicles and what have you. All of that is generally the type of thing that I see a lot of white people saying we do not want to bring any of that up at all. Uh, what do you think? I agree wholeheartedly. It's a painful kind of um, 
thing. And as I said, my first book was what, you know, the New York Times, the Buffalo News came out and did a big piece on it and uh, did a nice review. My parents were alive at the time. They weren't when, when the second book was done. And they came to the house and, and, and all of that. And they didn't touch this second book, even though, quite frankly, I think the second book is more important because it's it's historical fiction talking about something that happened written by a native son someone who went to high school, grammar school, elementary school, college there, and went away for graduate school, why wouldn't you cover it? It's almost as though, well, we don't want to touch this, and you're bringing up something, you of all people, bringing up something that we don't want to touch. Um, so I think that, that, that there's a big part of that. Um, and, and I think sometimes, because you mentioned that a lot of the people who have, who have looked at this are white, and the difference for, you know, and again, I don't have anything you know, negative to say about people who are researching, but I will say this, it's personal for me in a way that it isn't for them because I couldn't go back home at a time when I wanted to go back home because of this color of my skin and they didn't have that problem. And so, and so I, I think that the news media simply didn't want to cover my book, the second book as, as well as they did the first book. Um, because it's almost as though we don't want to touch that and we don't want to touch the ugliness of our city and it's interesting because in the book, what I do is I, I compare the pride of Buffalo with the bills and how right now, you know, the bills are, again, the rage of the city. But the fact of the matter is, if you pull back the veneer of the Buffalo bills and it's the birthright of somebody in Buffalo to cheer for them. But, the, but if you peel back the veneer, you've got problems that are much more important than cheering for a football team. And we don't want we don't want to linger on that. And, and, yeah, we've got a black male, but we don't want to linger on the fact that you can have a black mayor and still a bankrupt, hurting inner city with people that look like me, my people. Context of white supremacy. Uh, you mentioned uh, the Buffalo slaughters during the 1980s happening at the same time as the so-called Atlanta child murders, uh, which yes, <laughs> that's why we started talking about Joseph G. Christopher on May 15. Uh, this program, we came back on the air in 2009. Our very first broadcast back on the air was with Chet Detlinger, who is the co-author of The List, which is about the Atlanta child murders. He also was an investigator uh, on that case. He mentions the Buffalo killings in his book. That's how I knew about this. And in fact, yeah, two... Uh, and I, I said, there's no way it is. It should be absolutely impossible to talk about the so-called Atlanta child murders without bringing up Buffalo and vice versa, uh, because these uh, events, they are concurrent. Uh, and there are so many. I found so many news reports. I had to share this on the air because someone said the Atlanta child murders case got more media coverage. That's the case now. But in terms of at that time, that is not the case. Like. I sat right, and did yeah. a search for Buffalo and Atlanta. I didn't run out of articles. I got exhausted finding articles where Buffalo and Atlanta were talked about at the same time. In fact, that big splashy HBO documentary on the Atlanta child murders, that's the only nick that I have on the film. They didn't directly mention Buffalo, but these cases are so intertwined. They put a report on the screen it's titled the sad circus surrounding the kids murders where they're talking about the moms being excoriated for getting funds or what have yeah. you. 
within that report right on the screen it says three buffalo new york lawmen investigating the mysterious murders of several black men in their city show up in atlanta to determine whether there is any connection between the crimes here and there apparently there is not that's right on i said that that's how connected these cases were it astounds me as you said there was a connection then black people in buffalo black people in atlanta some people were even wondering is the same person doing all of this how how do you think that got disentangled where now there's at least some recollection about atlanta child murders as you said cnn they can do these big documentaries buffalo zero how did that happen you think I think that happened because Atlanta, the, the case in Atlanta lingered on. We know how Joseph Christopher was was finally uh, apprehended at Fort Benning, Georgia, because he stabbed a black GI. Right. You know, I mean, go figure. Of course, he's continuing to do to do what he'd been trying to do. But the but, but the other interesting thing is, I think um, America doesn't want to be reminded. You know, it's almost as though my daughter and I are right now working on some historical things a book series for black children and children called Black Legacy Lessons. And we're trying to look at and uncover black heroes and heroines that are little known because it's almost as though America chooses heroes and heroines for us in the black community. And much of the time, we follow suit. America also seems to say to us, let's focus on Martin Luther King and Rosa Parks and certain other heroes and heroines and let's not focus on some of the others. Yes, we can talk about slavery, but let's not talk about something else. And so I think that's part of it, my friend. I, I, I think the other thing is that it, it really speaks to the complex nature of, as you said, white supremacy. It's not one thing. It's not just slavery. And it's not just Jim Crow. And it's not just this. And it's not just that. It's redlining. And it is this other thing here. And I mean, it's so many different things. And I think this is a present reminder and so one of the things I did, and I, I want to mention this, is because I tried to look at the way in which there's a kind of prolonged Holocaust, if you will, that affects black people. And so the books that were inspired me as I was writing this book and struggling, how am I going to tell this story? Because I'm a fiction writer, but, I've got, but I'm reading all this history, so I've got to put the history in there. And it was really Tony K. Bambara's book on Atlanta child murders, Those Bones Are Not My Child, and then John Edgar Wiseman's book, on the bombing of the move compound and killing all those black people in Philly, right? And so those two books said to me, yeah, you can do this, and this is the way you do that. But nobody talks about the bombing of, of, of this inner city block, this black block of people, or blocks actually, in Philadelphia. It's almost as though there's certain things we don't want to remind, we don't want reminders of because the sore is still very open and very deep. And if we, and if we open that sore and touch it, we got to really begin to have some kind of accounting. You know, the whole notion of truth and reconciliation. There are certain things that, that happen in our country to black people that demand truth and reconciliation. And we're not there yet. Context of white supremacy, Dr. Frank E. Dobson. Uh, that, I thought, was just... Man, it... I'm struggling to find the correct word. Maybe he's a creative writer. Maybe Dr. Dobson can help me. But when he talked about, you know, hey, uh, these other white authors, they can write these books and talk about these events and what have you, and that's great and what have you. Some of them were even born in Buffalo, so they haven't even a personal connection to the city. But, hey, as a black male, victim of white supremacy, this is not just, oh, this is interesting, or, oh, I remember when this happened, or oh, even, I wrote about this when this happened. This is... 
I couldn't go home because my parents were afraid I would be killed. That is a little bit different of an experience about all of this and why would I even think about people not remembering this? I mean, anybody, if you can recall being away from your residence at all, much less being a young person and you're in college, so you've been away and, you know, you just want to go and relax, see your family and friends and all of that. And no, do not come back here. It is not safe. Stay there. And for that to be the case for... Uh, also, now he said when you were in college, you were in Ohio. Is that correct? I I was. Uh, this was right after graduate school, and I was still working on another degree. And I was working and and finishing up and writing basically. So ki- kind of ABD, all but dissertation at the time. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Is that in Ohio though? That was in Ohio. Yes, sir. Okay. It was in Ohio. Let, this is. Uh, let's see. From like I said, all of this seems to be pretty well covered so they had a report uh this is from 1981 and they mentioned because there is an ohio connection with all of this as well uh, i think i sent man what's my screen acting uh all right violence against minorities why and they had a subcommittee at the beginning of 1981 talking about uh the buffalo killings the atlanta killings uh the report reads Uh, In Buffalo, New York, four blacks were killed within 36 hours by a sniper described as a white male. The next week, two black taxi drivers were murdered and their hearts were cut out. Later, animal hearts were left in a locker room used by black workers at the Bethlehem Steel Company and a public library frequented by blacks. Probably one of the ones Dr. Dobson mentioned already. In Youngstown, Ohio... A 15-year-old black girl was killed by rifle fire from a pickup truck in which three white youths were cruising a black neighborhood. Do you remember that incident, Dr. Dobson? I do. I remember it vaguely. Yes, sir. Wow. And this, going back to what we were talking about in terms of why people don't remember this, since I started just posting, I was going back and researching and... Um, And I said, wow, this event was well covered because I have about 250 articles on the Buffalo case. I'm on the other side of the continent. Like, man, if I get to Buffalo, it'll be, you know, way more than that. And from lots of sources like the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, the Chicago Tribune, the black publications of that time did an extraordinary job. Like all of them, Jet, uh, Tony Brown's Journal, the Baltimore Afro-American, the Buffalo Challenger, Buffalo Criterion, just extraordinary. But I mean, it was widely uh, covered at the time. But when I started sharing these reports, I had folks saying, oh, man, that Youngstown shooting, I'd forgotten about that. With some of the other, they had a shooting in Chattanooga, Tennessee. It was four elderly black people. I remember that. Tennessee. <laughs> we had said, I remember that. Funny. But we had so many listeners who started saying, oh, I remember that. Oh, I remember that. And they even, they had some of the victims in Atlanta. They said, I'd started blocking some of this out. They said even, in fact, the book we're reading right now, they have a report from a black male at the time. And it's in the report. I went to the library to get it. Newsweek, they had an article in October 1980, Fear in the Black Community. Buffalo was a part of that. They were talking about the killings. It's right in the middle of it and the Atlanta child murders. But they had a black male, and he said 
every time you pick up the paper and it's a dead black body, it's like it's hunting season on black people. Now I said, now you, you know, have that yeah. for yeah. Th- this one on for a year, I could easily yeah. see how you have a whole lot of people who are collectively traumatized and they just start blocking all of this out and particularly the, all of it. Just what do you think about that, Dr. Dobson? No, you know, that's absolutely right. Because when my parents told me not to come home for a high school reunion, I don't know when I went back home. It wasn't right away because, again, the fear was there. Well, if they're shooting black people in the streets, black men in the streets in particular, um, how can I go back home? How can I go back home, particularly when my mom and my dad are saying, don't come right now? You know, I mean... I've, I've got to acknowledge them. And, you know, part of me wants to go and yank them away. Uh, but, yeah, so, so it traumatizes you and, and it says to you, your home is not your home. And it also says to you, your home is not yours. You don't own it. And the, and, 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 and the, the extension of that is you don't own it. We do. And we own you. I mean, it, it's, it's again about this whole notion of who are we in America? Are we chattel or are we something more? If we don't have control of our own bodies, our own neighborhoods, our own turf, I mean, that's my home. I mean, I could tell you stories about Jefferson Street and and my family and myself and my loved ones and the community. But the fact of the matter is, if that's not our home, even though we've been there for decades and decades and decades and decades, then what that says to us is you don't know nothing. You think you do, but you don't. And so the notion of fear and trauma and paranoia, that's what it is. You can't go back there now. How do you go back to that grocery store? How do you feel comfortable in your neighborhood? You know, and the other thing that happened when you're talking about that article, my dad was a steel worker. He worked for 40 years in Republic Steel. There were two big plants, one Bethlehem Steel in Lackawanna and Buffalo and, and Republic Steel right in Buffalo, but, but near the edge of Lackawanna. That's where our mothers and fathers and sisters and brothers, many of them, you know, they, they, they earned a good wage. They were doing time and a half and double time and all of that stuff. And, and so when those went kaput, when those went, you know, left the town, all of a sudden the black community, many of those people, that's how they fed their families. And so all of a sudden the black community was devastated because all of that happened in the early 80s around the time of this killing, of these killings. So you're absolutely right when you talk about the the, the woe-begotten nature of that community, you know? Mm. We talked about that with uh, Anna Blotto. Uh, Matter of fact, Dr. Sean Lay as well, his book on uh, Klan activity in Buffalo in the 1920s. They both talked about the history of the uh, steel corporations in West New York, uh, and white unions keeping black people out of the unions, and you know, in yes, to have yes, black, yes, black people brought in. It's not going to be equal wages. It's just going to be a lots of black people doing custodial work and lower wage. They're not going to be in managerial positions, and that had went on for years before we even got to. Oh, look, someone put a heart in the locker at Bethlehem Steel to mock the killings, and same thing happening this time around at the correctional facility. That was in the audio at the introduction that I didn't have time to explain. Uh, again, our guest, Dr. Frank E. Dobson Jr., Star 61, if you have a question for our listeners. Uh, you uh, talked about, and again, his book, Rendered Invisible, it was published 
before any of the other books. I was going to ask you a quick question about those, but I wanted to share. This is one of the reviews that I actually read uh, before I even had your book, before I even contacted you, and it just uh, it, it quotes your book, so it'll give you a double whammy. You'll get to hear a little, little bit. This is from uh, Vershawn Ashanti Young, uh, his review of Rendered Invisible. Uh, he writes, I stopped for lunch at Peaches in Bed-Stuy, Brooklyn, to finish Rendered. It's not long, 148 poetic prose pages. While eating and reading, a stylishly dressed black woman, a Toni Morrison type, the grandsister, who was with a group of church ladies, asks me, what are you reading? She squints to see the title through her glasses and directs me to hold the book up. That's about us? She asks. I smile, nod yes, and she says definitively, a sequel to Ralph Ellison as if she knew that Dobson's epigraphs a book with the classic line from Invisible Man. I smile again, laugh actually, and say, that's exactly right. She rises to leave with her party, says she's sorry for disturbing me, but tells me warmly, keep reading, baby. I started to tell her I'm an English professor, I read all the time, but that's not her point. Her point is expressed in the second encounter I have. This time, with an older man, I meet at Bread Bedsty next door to Peaches. This man peers over my shoulder, reading the cover of the book, and just as I'm about to don the stereotype of the rude New Yorker and ask him, What's your problem? He says angrily, I didn't know nothing about this. I ask, about what? About these killings in New York. And I'm from New York. I've heard that so many times. Listeners have said the exact same thing. I lived in New York. I was born in New York. And I didn't know anything about any of this. Always been here. And didn't hear nothing about the serial killing of these black men. And I realize that with just an intruding scan, he seized, interested, he gets it. Yeah, he says, we show rendered invisible, man. Even today, ain't much changed. He wrote down the title and left. The lady's encouragement to keep reading and the older man's excited interest are anticipated by Dobson himself in a dialogue he writes between Kwame, the owner of the barbershop that provides the locale for the story, and Eddie, a professor, a writer, one of two primary characters who's at the barbershop to reconnect with his past and collect stories. Kwame asks, Hey, Eddie man, why you taking notes, writing all this down? Nobody really cared about the deaths of black men in 1980, and nobody cares now. Eddie says, I care, and later rejoins the further questioning but shouldn't we care whether we realize it or not past events are part of our present lives that's why the fictional Eddie cares why the Morrison lookalike tells me to keep reading and why the coffee shop man is upset that he didn't know what happened in Buffalo they all realize it's important to know history rather than be ignorant and that's why Dobson has written this book 
and why Eddie has to say the following words to a white colleague. Aren't we, as teachers and scholars, duty-bound to research and read and write about historical occurrences? It's a rhetorical question, of course. Eddie is poised to answer it with his book, as Dobson does, beautifully with his. That was, I even shared that one with some listeners, like, that is exactly why we are reading this book in the book club. What are your thoughts on this segment of the review, Mr. Vershawn Ashanti Young? Well, I got the privilege to talk with uh, Professor Young, and he actually taught my book at his class. I don't know if he's still there at the University of Kentucky, and I was honored that he did. Um, Reading that now, really, I'm choked up a little bit because if you ask me, my brother, why I wrote the book, I wrote it for home. I wrote it for those people walking Jefferson, listening to the music, going to get chicken and steak. My mom used to work at a steakhouse on Jefferson Street. Um, going to church, beating their tambourines, and have just been overlooked. You know, you, you, you mentioned Ellison. They've been rendered invisible. We've been rendered invisible. And so the book was just an attempt to say, stop, look, listen, hear. You know, Marvin Gaye said, makes me want to holler. This was my attempt to holler and say, hey, y'all, this is still happening. As you said, as Dr. Young said, this is still happening. Y'all got to see this. Can't you see this? That was it. So thank you for reading that. Thank you for writing it. Thank you for writing it. Um, You're welcome. You're welcome. For sure. Um, You said in the book that, uh, and you mentioned it already, that Mr. Christopher, Joseph G. Christopher, that he killed all of these black males, uh, mostly black males in the dark skin uh, Latino male that he did this to start a race war. Uh, what what bit of evidence did you see led you to that conclusion? You know, um, I, I, I can't remember exactly what I read, but I do remember reading that somewhere. And again, I you know I did the research so so long ago. Um, but it's clear when you begin to look at the sites where he kills them. If you look at the fact that, as you say, with the two cab drivers whose hearts are cut out and they find their, their, you know, their, their bodies on the shores of Lake Erie, that it was not simply about killing them. It was about the sensational nature, and it was done to incite fear and paranoia so that there would be reprisals upon whites, uh, so that there would be this sense of you know, let's 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 have them kill one another. I mean, the, the the impetus for Joseph Christopher is the same impetus of the killer of of our people, my people in Buffalo a month ago, and Mother Emanuel. I mean, it's, they're the same guy. They're the same damn guy. They're the same guy. You know, and so um, and the sad thing is. There are many more of that same guy out there. How many? You know, that, that depends upon, you know, because, again, when you talk about white supremacy, this is sort of the zenith of white supremacy. Does white supremacy always come in this guy's? No. Maybe it's redlining. Maybe it's, as you said, uh, not letting someone join a union. Maybe it's something else, the indignities that I suffered and that you've suffered. 
But this is perhaps the zenith of white supremacy. Let me kill as many of them as I can. And, and, and we have to remember that the killer of our people at the tops most recently intended to kill as many as he could in that, in that store and then go up and down the streets. He was going to go on Northampton. He was going to go on Riley. He was going to go around the corner and start killing people in the neighborhood. That, that that to me says that this is the same guy, this is the same impulse as you talk about white supremacy, uh, the zenith of white supremacy. The uh, Peyton Gendron, born in Conklin, New York, uh, it's about 100, I guess approximately 200 miles drive from Buffalo, New York, uh, so-called yeah. sundown town, which, oh man talked about those before um did we i've been asking now mr gendron is 18 so these events took place decades before he was even born right i've said hey if he he wrote this manifesto that i've looked at uh he says he's researched these killers like dylan Stormroof and what have you he did his homework i've said hey i easily have amassed without spending any money and even being in the state of New York I have over 200 articles in addition to books about these killings he's in New York do you think it's possible that Peyton Gendron knew about the 22 caliber killings that that was a part of what influenced him to pick this location I think I think it was and and I've talked with with friends and loved ones and and my dad came from a very big family of something like uh, 13 of them, um, and they're spread all over the state. So I've got kinfolk in New York City, Albany, Schenectady, Buffalo, obviously. And I I believe that he was a New Yorker, so he was probably going to stay in state. And the two largest cities are New York City, which is much, much larger than Buffalo. They're at opposite ends of the state. Uh, Perhaps he felt he he wanted to get a critical mass. We We know that he looked at the zip code map to see where his, the site of his killing would be. Um, and, and, and I really believe that he may have studied the 22 caliber killer. And, you know, I'm going to go to a top supermarket because my predecessor did, you know? Um, and, and the other thing I would say is that it's definitely a war on black working class people who have simply been regard, disregarded by, 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 this, by, by this society. We don't care about them. We see them as less than and and this is my people i've never uh you know eschewed uh that that label of working class i still see myself as that um and so i i think he really did he was inspired by not only the the, the killer dylan roof in, in south carolina but i believe by the 22 caliber i don't have any evidence of that but i would not be surprised I would not be surprised. And, and the last thing I'll say, there was no way in hell he was going to New York City and try that. He just wasn't going to do that. Because, he wouldn't have gotten out alive. Because? The critical mass of black people and people of color in New York City. I don't think he would have gotten out alive. Hmm. They did have that white fella with uh, the machete who went to New York with the, also the stated goal of killing as many black people as possible. Um, I remember that. Yeah, yeah. Hmm, I don't know. Joseph Christopher. Yeah, man, yeah. yeah, he killed a lot. Yeah, yeah, and he killed four in New York City. Exactly. He did, they're that's, right. Yeah, that's what I was, I don't, eh, <laughs> I don't know. 
because that's the more white supremacy yeah. is expansive. White people have shown that they can violate black people. We were just talking about the move bombing, uh, and we on the council yes, talking we were, about yeah. the move bombing extensively. Osage Avenue, absolutely active terrorism. Let it burn, children and all. Let absolutely. It, let it burn. Let it burn. And, and and you know the collusion of a black mayor, Wilson Good. I mean, you know, come on, brother. I use that term advisedly. I use that term advisedly. <laughs> oh man, context of white supremacy. Woo. Dr. Frankie yes, Dobson Jr. with us again, Star Six One. If you uh, have questions, have you? Did you read any of these other books that have come out subsequently? Again, for listeners, I even it took me a while to kind of sit with that. Like, man, for a while, this was the only book. I'm familiar with her book, but the others I'm not, just hers, yeah. Okay, okay. Did you have any thoughts about uh, Catherine Pellinero's work? And that is a white woman? No, no, not not really. I mean, you know, I I would say this. I I was thankful that someone else picked up the gauntlet because as much attention as possible on the killings is important because, again, you're saying these people don't don't matter if, if you don't give them attention. So I'd say any attention is better than than less attention. That's what I would say. But, but that's that's pretty much my only comment, because I think there's a qualitative difference between reportage. And again, this is autobiographical for me. I mean, I'm, I'm the characters in the book. That's the barbershop I went to in Buffalo. I mean, there's, there's all this stuff there that's, that, that's different than someone who's writing about from the outside. I'm not writing from the outside. And so it's, it's difficult for me to say anything other than I'm glad they wrote the book, but I can't really offer an evaluation. Mm, I, I think it's too emotional for me. Mm, that makes very logical, very logical. I will state just just – the eloquent response that you gave us, Doctor. He did ask me to call him Frank. It's just habit, you know. I try to be respectful. Okay, okay, sure, sure. Him. But, but I guess Frank, he, the eloquent response that he just gave us, I've said over and over, it bothers me so much. Catherine Pellinero, when she in this book is saying, "Shorty, this, Harold, this, these are not her." homies i do not think that she was playing basketball in east buffalo and that she went to that tops grocery store and what have you like you do not have that personal connection to these people why are you referring to them on a first name basis like that just really bothered me uh throughout the text and a lot of listeners has pointed out there's a lot of emphasis on the uh, alleged nefarious activities uh, of these black males that they were uh, numbers runners and uh, if they had narcotics uh, records or anything like that uh, it's like wait a minute that's not why they were killed like that that in fact that might be a part of why they have been rendered indivisible that oh yeah these just you know no count criminal negroes anyway like a lot those are at least two points like i appreciate having the information there and you know all of that but wow there's a enormous difference in having someone like Dr. Dobson write about these events and then having a white person, male or female write about these events enormous. That's something that I'll say about halfway through the book. Well, thank you. I, 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 you know, I, I share that and, and so that, that's part of the reason that I haven't delved into these books in the way that, that one might because 
while the, while the reportage is important, and as as, as, as with you, I, I read a lot of stuff on the book as I was writing it. Um, but for me, there's something personal about it that I can't uh, that, 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 that 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 prohibits me from you know, fully appreciating perhaps what they've done because, you know, it's like you're writing about my home, but this is my home. Um, and, and so much of the time, I, I must say this, uh, you know, we as black people don't value our history like we should. And then somebody white or somebody from outside of our community comes along and uncovers something. But we've got to be- begin to value our history more so that we don't have people coming in and usurping. We need to tell our own stories. And that's why I'm glad to hear about your radio show. And, and I'm going to continue. I'm going to follow you after this because what you're doing is so vitally important, my brother. So vitally important. Much obliged. Much obliged. Just trying to get the problem solved so that hopefully we never have to chat about this again. We can talk about we can talk about Rick James and all kinds of other <laughs> important things, man. Like uh, yeah. Gro- uh, Grover Washington, he's another Buffalo. Uh, got that in the book. I got that in the book. I do love Grover Washington too, but I mean, there's one and only Rick James. Um, one and only Rick James. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He, he, yeah. There are some people from his family went to my mama's church, and she would come and probably say, "Rick James donated some to our church." I'm like, people, people don't know Rick James was given to your church, mama. They listen to his music. <laughs> oh Lord. Uh, Rick James. Rick James. I love. I was gonna rename the book club, the Rick James Book Club. After I uh, wow. was reading, he has been. Can I? I'll even pause for a second now. Why was Gus going to do that? Like seriously, we started. Yeah, this why? Year. Tell me why, brother. <laughs> we started this year. We re- are you familiar with uh, Anthony Broadwater and the whole situation with Alice Siebold, black male in New York State who was falsely accused of raping this white woman in Syracuse, New York? No. Okay, that was a big to do last year, like the end of the year. There's supposed to be a documentary coming out on it sometime this summer called Unlucky. But the gist of it is in Syracuse, New York, 1981, May, white woman Alice Siebold uh, is a freshman at Syracuse. Jim Brown, she says that a black male uh, rapes her and they do a lineup. They pick Anthony Broadwater. They pick hair and all this other pseudoscientific BS. He ends up being convicted doing 16 years. Uh, then oh, Lord. they come back all these years later and find out whoops, we did have that pseudoscientific BS and messed up all this other stuff and whoops you did not do this. Sorry. Uh, and they vacate the conviction. And so she wrote a, in fact, she wrote a book about this. They were about to make this into a movie until the conviction was vacated and then they had to go back and look. So we read her book. Wow. That book, as I said, the rape happens in 19 May, 1981. She references herself as a super freak. Oh Lord. Now Gus T <laughs> had to do my rewind. So Rick James super freak came out in when April, 1981 Mm-hmm. You are rocking Rick James for the rest of the book club that became so important for reading her book, which is, a t- I mean, you want to talk about white supremacy, racism and rendered invisible Anthony Broadwater. 
He was a Viet- wow. not Vietnam, but he was a uh, in the Marines, served his country, came back working, didn't do anything, gets falsely convicted and has to go to jail for 16 years. I think they said his mom died while he was in jail. Couldn't get out to go to the funeral or nothing. And now you got to be a registered sex offender for the rest of your life. Talk about rendered and then whoops, all of that. And then, so he got out, I think he did it 16 years. He gets out in the 90s. That means he lived another like almost 25 years, quarter of a century as a registered sex offender. Mm. Rendered invisible. So that was where we started with Rick James uh, as we moved through all of that. Then we came back. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I will even pause. Bring the Rick James back for our understanding of all of this. I don't even think people, I apparently have not been listening to Rick James correctly and understand. Oh, he can't was born in Buffalo and even what he sang in the songs Super Freak Ghetto Songs the streets was Super Freak Street Songs Ghetto Life Fire and Desire all of that came out in April 1981 which is the exact same month Joseph G. Christopher was indicted for these Buffalo yep. killings exactly that is the context for how I'm listening to Rick James in fact this is our pause this is why the book club almost got renamed the Rick James book club at the context of white supremacy. You will hear Rick James within context of everything that we've been talking about. We'll hear this real quick and then get Dr. Uh, Dr. Dobson's thoughts. There has been stepped up violence against blacks in various parts of the country. In part one of this special report, we dealt with the murders and disappearance of 17 black children in Atlanta. This program probes a new twist in the violence against blacks. In December, six black men in New York City were stabbed in one day. Four died. Within a period of three weeks last fall, four blacks in Buffalo were shot in the head within 36 hours, and two black cab drivers were killed and their hearts were removed from their bodies. In January, two black men were stabbed to death in Buffalo and Rochester, and three others were attacked. All of the victims were black men, and the attacker in all of the cases was described by police as a white male. I'm Tony Brown. In a moment, part two of, quote, is there a national conspiracy against black? When you talk to people on Jefferson Avenue, you get a range of reactions and a range of theories. But there's one common denominator. Everybody is angry. What have you found as you move around as a newspaper editor on the part of blacks? I mean, in addition to being afraid, which is understandable, uh, what do you find in terms of, of, of the mood? Well, not so much fear, Tony, as caution. There's never been a state of fear. There's never been a reign of fear in Buffalo, even at the height of the killings. If anything, people were ready to go to war. And the only thing that's kept the lid on Buffalo has been the weather. Had it been in the summer months, I really believe Buffalo would have exploded. And if, in fact, these killings continue into the summer or spring, I believe that Buffalo will explode. The police are not doing their job, you know, for sake, you know, like... They don't have to worry about it. If this individual comes in this area or, you know, like uh, anywhere in the vicinity, they don't have to worry about it because he will be taken care of. While tensions are mounting in Buffalo's black community. Angry, frustrated, unsafe. That's how residents living on the east side of Buffalo, New York, describe how they're feeling. It's been one month since a gunman opened fire at a grocery store there. A racist attack targeting black shoppers. Ten people were killed. 
The community is coping with tragedy, but also the very practical loss of that Topps friendly market, which remains closed for now. The 18-year-old man accused of killing 10 black people at a Buffalo grocery store was in court today. He entered a not guilty plea on charges of domestic terrorism and first-degree murder. In addition to the fiery criticism the district attorney was taking from black leaders, his office also heard from citizens who were outraged over the investigation for starkly different reasons. He received complaints from people who felt that too much time and resources were being consumed by the probe. A few were blatantly hateful. One particularly virulent letter read, in part, What is the matter with the people of Buffalo? Five members of the despicable nigger race are killed and the town goes absolutely schizophrenic. I didn't see the town declare Unity Day for the multitude of white cops murdered by niggers and all the elderly couples and singles beaten or robbed by niggers, including me. Damn them. Let them know the fear we've experienced for years at their hands. I am seeing, along with a large number of others, a sad case of nigger coddling. Reverse discriminatory treatment. I hope he gets 20 more before you catch him. It'll make life a lot more bearable for all of us. Rick James. Rick James. Give it to him slow. I said we have not listened to Rick James correctly. He was born in Buffalo. That song, Ghetto Life, came out the very month Joseph G. Christopher was indicted in Ghetto Life. He said, one thing about the ghetto, you don't have to hurry. It'll be bad tomorrow. Brother, yeah. you now? I yeah. mean, <laughs> Rick, that's why. All of that is why, in aggregate, it almost became the Rick James Book Club at the context of white supremacy. I think Rick, Rick, Rick would have loved that, man. I think he would have loved that. Stone City, my brother, Stone City. Man, that, for folks listening, the audio clip, that one I will break down. That was Tony Brown's journal <laughs> at the beginning, 1981. I'm so thankful to being a book nerd to be able to find that. They did a whole 20-minute program just talking about Buffalo, uh, and within, is this a national conspiracy against black people? Uh, we played a nice, basically all of it uh, for the book club last week. Uh, and then the segment with the black male, they went and did archival footage. Rich Newberg, he was a reporter in Buffalo at the time. He posted all this archival footage on YouTube of his coverage of the 22 caliber case. Uh, and they have all these street scenes with black people, a lot of black males, uh, and the one black male is saying, man, the police are not doing an adequate job. 
They don't have to worry about it. <laughs> if I find him, he will be. T- there are so many black males who said the same thing. That's three. Catherine Pellinero in her book, Absolute Madness, she had the audacity to say that there were black bounty hunters who were out just trying to get reward money. I said, hey, what I've seen repeatedly, not one person said anything about money. I've seen repeatedly that black people who were angry, police, you don't want to do anything about it. Fine. We will get our guns. You wrote about this in your book. We will deal with things accordingly. No Exactly. And there was a police, there, there was a threatened police slowdown because they were, mm-hmm. they were like, yes, at the same time, I mean, they're killing us and y'all are talking about, and so they had to bring the feds into the case. And, the, and you know, the reason, that, and I talk about that, I don't know if she covers it, the reason they brought the feds into the case because the killings were happening at like Burger Kings and places where, you know, you were denying somebody their accommodation to, you know, from the old civil rights legislation. We didn't trust the Buffalo cops. We wanted the damn feds in the case. I happened to, you know, meet Charlie Fisher and people like Frank Messiah was over the NAACP and Charlie Fisher there, one, one of the local black leaders as well. You know, when I went back in 2010 and, and they did, we didn't trust the cops. That's why we wanted the feds in on it. We didn't trust the local cops. I mean, I grew up, you know, saying having choice words for them, quite frankly. No surprise that prominently mentioned. I think I read that in the report. Buffalo's black community and their white police. I think I read it two times because it was black police officers saying, hey, the police precincts got pictures up with this guy is our hero. (laughs) Yes, 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 yes. Uh, But. Yes, she does talk about the police slowdown, and that's I've mentioned that repeatedly. Like, you've got to be joking. Like, can you imagine if white people were being killed and dismembered, and they're going to have a police slowdown in the middle of this? Like, eh. Hey, women, now, come on, y'all, come on, y'all. And and, and and I'm sure you've covered this already, but you know there was also that assassination attempt on the life of Vernon Jordan in 1980. Joseph Paul Franklin, yes. That, yeah, I yeah. I didn't know anything about Joseph Paul Franklin. I was totally ignorant, uh, but fortunately she does uh, cover that in the book. And again, oh, she there does. Okay, good. are so many newspaper reports where it's not just Atlanta, Buffalo. There's some days where it'll be the, the story. So this, you could pick any paper even. Uh, let's pick the Atlanta Constitution. I said that one already. So on page A11, the very top story will be Atlanta child murders and what's going on? 11 bodies. Okay, you read that one. The next story will be Buffalo Madman still on the loose. Hearts carved out. No, 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 no. The next story will be Vernon Jordan assassination attempt. More information. Seems Joseph Paul Franklin. Also, and now he didn't just shoot at Vernon Jordan. He had also killed, I think it was like six, eight, who knows uh, how many other black males. That also, all of that would be on the same page same paper for content, but yes, she because of that, she does cover that in the text, and I didn't even know about that. That's what I mean about collective his or collective trauma-based amnesia, where so many things were happening, where I think just a lot of black people were just overwhelmed uh, by... It was just too much, uh, and, and these events went on for a really long time. They went on for like a year, uh, where the Atlanta child murders was longer than that. Even this case went on for a really long time with no resolution. It did. So. 
Yeah. Uh, yeah. That last portion, apparently someone wrote in a letter saying, you know, hey, you're wasting all these resources bringing the FBI in. We've got too much nigger coddling. I never heard that term in my life. Too much nigger coddling. I hope mm. he gets 20 more of them. Same sort of sentiment was expressed with last month's slaughter. They played the security guard who was making jokes about all of that online, making $100,000. Mm. Like, oh, Lord. Wow. System of white supremacy. Uh, I wanted to read one passage from the book before I asked a, a question, and then I'll check out for listeners as well. This is on page. Make sure I get. Oh, 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 oh. This is on page. 93 from chapter 12. Uh, so you write. <laughs> the story is ours. Or, uh, I'm still angry. Okay. The day after Riley came, I have to go backwards to get my question about him because I think that's important. But for now, the day after Riley came around, John Johnny was still hot. That pissed me off, he said. Him showing up here like that. Can't we have nothing to ourselves but build and stuck to his story all these years, never ratted me out, not even to his missus, far as I can tell. And his story is also yours, my friend, in some ways. Yeah, it is. But I ain't done. I'm still angry, not just at Bill, but at white people in general. Sometimes I still say under my breath, I hate white people. I hate them. We all say that, I said. Because it's war, Kwame said. And it's never not war, Johnny said, even when it seems to be peace. Maybe the nature of the warfare, the battle just changes, I said. You're right, Eddie, man. And sometimes I used to think I was just going to be a casualty, just another brother all messed up in the head and in his life. One once in a while I really didn't think me and Laney was going to make it even after we reconciled because I had too much anger at white folks at the system hell even at myself for not being white you mean for not being right Kwame chuckled we joined in all recalling the adage white is right and black is get back I will pause there so much I could say about this passage from uh, barbershop talk what what were you trying to convey to readers in this here section well you know what I do with the barbershop talk is I bring you back to the narrator the eye of the story who's you know Johnny and and the fictitious Bill Riley and this white cat and this black cat who are you know the fictional veneer and they're you know dealing with one another you know, symbolic, but real, uh, while this race war is going on with the real story of the 22 caliber killer that I tell through the newspaper accounts. And I'm really dealing with, you know, cause in a way I'm all three of them. I'm, I'm, I'm Riley in a way, cause I'm, I'm a college professor like he is. I'm Johnny cause Johnny's a black working class and that's me. That's my background. And, and, and I'm also Eddie cause you know, Eddie's, Eddie's the storyteller and, and, and I'm telling the story. And so for me, it's like we're trying to get out of this mess. And I say we, meaning black people. 
And I had a friend of mine, a black man with a PhD from Princeton that people tried to squash. And he would say this all the time to me, Frank, and I used to work together at another school I was at. And he said, it's, ne- it's, it's never not war. It's never not war. That's bad English, but that's real talk. And so even when you think it's not war, it's still war. And so that, that's number one. Number two, this whole question of self-hatred, being angry at oneself because one isn't white, being angry at oneself because one doesn't have white privilege. There's no way in hell I can have white privilege. I mean, you know what I'm saying? So, so there's a sense in which when you see yourself, as Du Bois says, looking at oneself through the eyes of others, that notion of two-ness, how do you then grapple with that? How do you then struggle with that to in order, and you have to struggle with it. In order to fight the war that confronts you, you have to struggle with this notion of I'm not that, this is how they see me, and how can I see myself in a way that will allow me and energize me to fight this war every single day? That's much of what the passage is about. Mm, much obliged for the detail. Never not war. Mm. That uh, white is right. It reminded me immediately of Dr. Francis Cress Welsing. Um, are you familiar with her work, Dr. Francis Cress Welsing? Yes, I am. Yes. Thought so. Thought so. Um, and now I can do it the correct way to go back with Bill Riley, but I'll read for listeners a little bit more so they'll get at this uh, white college professor. They have a uh, dramatic exchange uh, in the book. So I'm picking up now. I'm on page 88. Uh, let's see. Riley was, Riley was backed up against the door like he wondered if this was going to be a repeat of what happened to him years ago. His eyes bulged big and white. Another gang of black men and him alone, but he'd come to us. I just heard someone was working on telling the story of, of what? Johnny interrupted him. Then he leaped out of his chair, slammed Riley up against the wall, and held him there. You got, uh, a lot of black-on-white violence in this book. I suspect that is probably why they did not want to talk about this book now. Like, yes, radical. (laughs) Uh, Let's see. Ain't nothing you can say or add, Professor. Whatever you've been studying or trying to do about black folks, go do it somewhere else, man. Besides, how you find out about us anyway? Your wife, my wife, Johnny punched him hard in the gut. Bill doubled over, and Kwame grabbed John and pulled him away. Kwame stood between the two of them. What's going on here? Ain't nobody invite his ass, Johnny said. I'm not your brother, white man, neither your friend. Then what are you to me, John? Riley was coughing from the punch, but his eyes said there was no retaliation. What are you to me? Your wife ran into my wife at the mall, and Delaney mentioned a professor. You, sir, he said, looking at me, was working on the story. Ain't your story to tell, Johnny said, backing up his fists still clenched. Johnny's eyes were red with fire. I just want to help. You can't help. 
only help you do is get your whitey ass out of here. I will stop there just for listeners. If you have been listening to the cows, I literally just talked about how you never hear anyone say, get your white ass out of here. Like, never. I literally, within the last 10 days, just got on this program and and in the context of anti-blackness, because I said, man, all the time, it's black ass out of here, black ass this, black ass, black ass from other non-white, everybody. You never, and to read this book and get your whitey ass out, I was stunned. Once again, take this as one of those signals from the, let me ask, Dr. Dobson, do you hear that? Is that how they talk in Buffalo? People say on a regular basis, get your white ass out. People say that? They think it if they don't say it, brother. (laughs) (laughs) They think it if they don't say it. And, 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 And the reason I say that is because Buffalo, and you talked about it, you grow up in Buffalo, and there, and many cities are like this, but there's a strong sense of territoriality in the city. There's South Park where the Polish people, there's a place where the, the north side where the Italians are, and, you, you know, there's certain places where you just don't go, at least you didn't when I grew up, you know? And we would go, but we would go as a gang, and, you know, we'd go steal pizzas. We weren't going to fight. We'd go to get stuff off of trees. And, you know, there's a place called the Fruit Belt, which is a black enclave. And, and so there's certain places and spaces. And so this whole notion of territoriality and sacredness of one's territory is there. And this is a black barbershop. The proprietor is Kwame. And I name him after someone who mentored me in Nashville, Kwame Leo Lillard, who was uh, involved in the Nashville sit-ins and, and, and a very um, Afrocentric, very, very, very strong black warrior who just died recently. I, I, you know, I dedicated the book to him before he died, but it's about black men coming together. And, and this is our place and this is our sacred place. It's like the, the baobab tree in Africa. The elders come together and the youngins and we teach and we learn. And so you're coming in our space and our place. No, you're not welcome unless you're invited and you were not invited. So that's what that's about. Um, and, and I think the other piece is having been a director of a black cultural center at predominantly white campuses, where there are times when we just need to get together and talk about and heal one another's wounds. And so you've got this white professor who's one of the fictional characters coming in to talk to Johnny. And the two of them have been the two characters struggling, you know, together, kind of like in the Defiant Ones where you've got Sidney Poitier and Tony Curtis chained to one another. Well, they're kind of chained to one another, not in physical chains, but chains because the city in 1980 is blowing up on, uh, you know, over the killing of black men. And you got this white man and this black man who happened to be together and some stuff happens to the white man. And then he comes after the black man kind of rescues him. He comes to the barbershop uninvited to talk about race. No, you weren't invited. There are things, and, and, and maybe it's this, we as a black community are certain things we have to do with one another first. And then maybe the invitation happens, but this, there was no invitation and you need to leave. want to make sure I made a distinction many non-white people I'm sure may think get your whitey ass out of here 
I hear many, 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 many non-white people verbalize, get your black ass out of here all the time. And I do think that is substantially different um, why the latter can be verbalized. Unless, did they not say that in Buffalo? Let's ask that. They they say it in more ways than one. Absolutely. 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 It's been said to me all over the place. In Ohio, in Las Vegas when I lived there. Yes. Yes. It's 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 been said. It's been said in many ways, in many places, and that's part of growing up as a black person in America. And even and, and living as a black person in America once one has grown. It said over and over and over again. Yes. Mm. With you there. Yes, indeed. All day long. Yes. Um, yes. Woo, we had Matt Greider on the program uh, 50 years for the Buffalo News. Andy wrote the book, Joey 22. Uh, he's with us more. I don't know why that sticks out for me. Like, man. Anyway, not that I don't even do Memorial, I don't do holidays, period. But anyway, he was with us that day. I was staggered. Uh, he was writing about all of this and writing about the motivations, and he referenced uh, Michael M. Batten, uh, his book, Unnatural Death. <laughs> Michael Batten, who was in, in the uh, O.J. Simpson trial. That's People uh, see him, they're like, oh, yeah, if you saw all that or paid attention to all that, you'll recognize him yeah, immediately. Yeah, yeah. But his book, he writes about the Christopher case. I just want to read a little mm-hmm. snippet of what he wrote to get, sure. get your thoughts. So he says, what is his motive? Although Christopher felt compelled to confess, he had no such compulsion to explain himself. He was different from the normal serial killer. He didn't quite fit our preconceived ideas of what he should be. He wasn't killing for fun or for money or even for sex. And he was killing blacks despite the fact that he had black friends. There's it again. Uh, He didn't seem to be killing for hate. He could be one of the hallucinating psychotics like Son of Sam, the select few who hear God or the devil telling them to kill. He could also be a sexual sadist, a killer for whom the real purpose is a show of physical superiority and aggression. Studies show such people to be outwardly friendly. They have no criminal record before they start their career in murder. Often there is a conflict with their adult sexuality. Their family and friends are invariably shocked in these situations. The victim is significant. The victim represents something. The army has a theory. A riff on guilt and shame and a sexual conflict that could not be resolved. The army thinks Christopher is gay. He was friendly with black soldiers, but his relationships had other dimensions. He performed fellatio on them in the stockade in return for extra food. He also made a pass at the captain of the stockade. The army thought he was physically attracted to a particular type thin, with a mustache, but he knew the men were off limits, so he tried to destroy the thing that was tempting him. By killing them, he proved he was macho like his father. 
joining the army was part of the need to be macho, too, to meet his father's expectations. The prison psychiatrist who observed him briefly thought the truth about Christopher might be simple racism. He had trouble getting along with some of the blacks in prison, but the psychiatrist does not have much information. No effort is made to study the minds of prisoners to learn what made them killers and to try to prevent it in the future. Christopher's trial in Buffalo proceeded without exploring his motives. He was convicted of the three Buffalo 22 caliber shootings and in New York City he was convicted of the four slashings. Morthengue apologized to Michael Kelly. Oh, but none of this mattered. The minute I saw the photographs, I knew it was obvious that one person had done the killings. All of the New York City stabbing victims looked alike. They were young, brown-skinned men with mustaches, and they could have been brothers to the 22 caliber victims in Buffalo. In a random selection, it would have been extraordinary if the two of them had looked alike. None of Gross's five people had also noticed the resemblance. Each of them had an autopsy done. Each of them had autopsied only one case. Also, I had the advantage of having seen the upstate victims. It was really an accident that I noticed the faces at all. Wounds are what we examine, not faces. It just happened to hit me. Uh, this is Baden's theory, where he's saying that the army, they're coming with this information that he was making these sexual passes and engaged in this sexual activity with these black soldiers. This may have been motivating and then looking and seeing that all the victims seem to look similar. Uh, had you seen any of this before? Does any of this seem logical to you? What do you think? But the, the thing that flies in the face of that is that there was a wide, wide age range. Glenn Dunn was 14 and the oldest victim's parlor, and I'm forgetting his last name, was 70. Oh, Edwards. The one of the cabbies was 70. So that's what, 56-year difference? So I don't know how a 14-year-old looks like a 70-year-old. I mean, I, I, I just don't know. So racism I, 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 is, is, is more, more to the case. If there wasn't that range in age, maybe I would buy that. But there's a hell of a range of age between the youngest victim and the oldest two victims. Does, does anybody talk about that? He says, uh, excellent point. Glenn Jones, uh, Glenn Dunn, sorry, the 14-year-old uh, that he's not, it's the same, even now, even with that, the logic is the same racist reasoning that we hear with Tamir Rice, Michael Brown Jr., that he was stronger, he didn't look like a child, he had a more masculine physique like that, you know, and in fact, we had Matt Greider on the program, we had to consist, consistently say uh, Glenn Dunn was not a black man. He was 14. He was 14. So, I mean, he was 14 and he was sitting in a car. Exactly. Exactly. So he was sitting in the car. Now, he might he might have seen him walking to the car. But when he shot him, he was seated in the car. I I, I don't know if I buy that it, it, because, the, the, the you know, the, one of the man, one of the one of the things that happens with 14 year old black boys is they're they're seen as these as you say hyper masculine hypersexual monsters and this was a child i mean i'm a parent and a grandparent this was a child so you know i mean yeah i, I have a problem with with that because of the range of age of, of the victims right parlor edwards and some of these
these other victims, as you said, they're in their 70s. Like, I mean, I guess you could say they're in good shape, but I mean, wow, that is a super. Yeah. They even said some of the victims, apparently there was some sort of uh, witness who said that they saw a white person confronting a black male who was upset because this black male had a white girlfriend. And that was a huge pattern. That was Paul, uh, Joseph Paul Franklin. That was a huge pattern in his cases and a big part of what was happening then. So, yeah, I think, I think racism. Yeah, I, I think that, and I think also getting back to the territoriality, Parler Edwards is shot in Amherst. If you know anything about Amherst, black people are not supposed to live in Amherst. Black people are not supposed to live in Tonawanda. Those are northern suburbs. Um, and particularly back then, black people weren't supposed to be there. And that I kind of deal with that in, in my book with the two fictional characters, where at one point the black man and the white man, after he brings him home, he's got to walk back to the city. And there was a strong sense of, you know, what are you doing in our neighborhood? And, and so, and, 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 you know, I get that. I got that a lot. And I, and, and, and reading some of the things that Rick James, I mean, you get a strong sense of, I'm not supposed to be at this school. I'm not supposed to be at this place. And so for, for, um, Parler Edwards to be killed, you know, he's, he's from Grave Street, but he's killed in Amherst. And, and, and Jones, the other, the other taxi driver who's like 40, He's killed in Tonawanda. Again, those are not places where black people traditionally live in Buffalo. So I think the territoriality piece is a big is a big part of it as well. And I think there was at least another victim that was also killed in the suburbs. And then in Niagara Falls, which had a smaller black population, one of the persons is killed. I think he's also preying on p- black people that in some sense or another, they've overstepped their bounds. What the hell are they doing in this neighborhood? Mm, what are you doing with this white woman? And what are you doing with this white woman? Again, the whole notion is, what are you doing? You know, again, you're you're a threat, and I'm going to exterminate this threat because this threat is doing something that that we don't prescribe for them to do. In other words, you know, if I'm if I'm if I'm supreme and you're inferior, you're not supposed to be here, and you've transgressed one of those unwritten laws and rules. I mean, I got that every, every year because when I when I went to University of Buffalo. I, I, I ended up commuting. I didn't live on campus, although my sister did. And so going back and forth to campus, which was right on the sub, you know, the edge of the suburbs, and now the campus is in the suburbs, you are very conscious of that because you know that you can get jumped, you can get beaten for, you know, by gangs of whites for being in the wrong neighborhood at the wrong time in the city. And everybody knows that, particularly in that era. That was very strong. does talk about in the book there's I guess a park where some white supremacist group had set talking about that territoriality where they said they would go and just kind of patrol I'm going to see if I can find that park really quick but they would beat up black people uh, I think they described having like a crowbar uh, at one point mm. and just looking for you know any black person you're not supposed to be here this is our this is our turf right and yes bam, absolutely uh, I'm going to see if I can get that before I get through. But, I mean, that does make a lot of sense. That seems, at, at least according to, to all the reports that I've seen, exactly what you said. They mentioned that in the Buffalo Challenger at the time, like it, that exactly what you said, like these black people are going to these suburbs where there aren't a lot of black residents. You wouldn't have a lot of black people there. Like, hey, 
you're not even supposed to be here. And I think they even said that some of these victims, they were working. I think, uh, if it's, was it Shorty Jones? I think Shorty Jones, he was a veteran. Like, he was working. He was out doing his cab work and all of that. Like, some of these folks that might have been upset about that as well. Uh, it wasn't like Joseph G. Christopher was some mogul and real estate tycoon and was doing that was not the case so it would not have taken much for him to see a black person and think oh my god what are you doing you're above your station get down let me you know exactly exactly and i say that because my my family moved from uh around the jefferson area to the kensington grider kensington bailey area and the home we lived we moved on um, in the late 60s and early 70s was, um, I think we moved on there to a five whites on the, on the whole street. And then, of course, there was white flight. But early on, I mean, we had to be careful. Myself and a couple of other friends that lived in the projects on the, you know, off of Jefferson, they moved three blocks away. And we knew we had, to, we had to be together because there would be gangs of whites looking at us going like, what are y'all doing? Y'all are taking our neighborhoods. And, and, and when busing happened in Buffalo, it happened in certain high schools. It didn't happen in Bennett, which is one of the high schools that Rick James went to. He went to East High School and then Bennett, and then maybe another high school. My sisters went to East and then Kensington. And they bust us into Kensington, and there were major fights and gang fights because there was a handful of blacks going to this, you know, previously all-white high school. And there were fights, like, every single day, <laughs> you know? To the point that we had reinforcements, black people coming from East and Bennett to help us fight against the whites. They would just leave their high schools because we were outnumbered. So I, I think that that sense of territoriality, particularly in a small city like that, is very, very strong. Wow. <laughs> that is and, and, and you know, you know what it reminds me of? It reminds me of, of Howard Beach, the Howard Beach incident, of course, which is you know, the, 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 you know, part of the impetus for Spike Lee's movie, Do the Right Thing, where, you know, these blacks are in the wrong place, wrong time, and they get killed by this gang of white thugs, Howard Beach, New York City. Wow. Reinforcements to get out. Like, wow, that is... Uh, yeah. Hmm. Terrorism. Make sure we are using correct words uh, to describe things. Uh, I'm going to find the park group so I can see if this is because you you know this this is your home. So I will uh, sift through and see if I can find this really quick so that I can see if you. Okay, sure, sure, sure. I'm this. good. I'm good. Okay. Yes, sir. Uh, and the folks, if you all have a question, it's star six one. While I'm doing that, have you been surprised that they have not made any sort of uh, Emmett Till uh, crime or into Emmett Till lynching? charge against uh peyton gendron like they did they had so much uh media coverage uh, of this being passed finally and what this meant and putting it in historical context like if ever a case would qualify this would be it right this would be it i am i am in the pre currently reading um an old book but a really good book by a, a, a professor clonora hudson weems called emmett till the sacrificial lamb of the civil rights movement and you're absolutely right. Um, that should be the case. I mean, this is this is another form of lynching. Yeah. Maybe they will wait to see. Hopefully, people will pay attention to the trial and what have you. As all of that uh, moves. I forward. hope so. I hope so. I hope so. Is is the Billy Riley character? Is he totally fictional? Is he based on anybody helpful white man? 
He's based upon, uh, you know, I've lived my life in academe, and so I've, I've, I've come up with a lot of good white folk who are white liberals, and, and I think it's, it's my really trying to work through that whole question of the white liberal who wants to be friendly and beneficial to blacks, but I'm thinking of what somebody said once when they were talking about the civil rights movement, and maybe I learned this from my, my late good friend, uh, Kwame Leo Lillard, and, and it's like, well, do you have any skin in the game? I know you say you empathize or sympathize, but where's your skin in the game? And Bill Riley doesn't really want to have skin in the game. He wants to help him, but only so far. Um, and when he's endangered, we kind of see that. And so I, I really just am looking at that whole question of what is the role of the white who wants to be supportive? And we see what happens in, in, in the barbershop. So I don't know if it's answers as much as it is questions about the positionality of, of the so-called beneficent white who wants to help. Well, what should the nature of the help be? And, may, and maybe what I say in, 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 in the barbershop incident is that that help and the kind of help and the way to help happens has to be dictated by the black community and not the other way around. In the book, you you seem to write uh, suspicions uh, that hey, is this Bill Billy Riley character? Is he trying to you know make some moves on my wife here? Like what is going on? Yes, that 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 that's that, that's a part of it. That's intentional. Absolutely, that is intentional. Hmm. Have, have you that isn't had those concerns? Like maybe some of these helpful white people have ulterior motives that lead to the bedroom, or or lead to subjugation because it's 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 not as though i, I want to push the sexual piece too much although i do in other stories in the collection um and again that's taken off of, of richard wright's eight men but but i want people to understand that you have to look at those who come bearing gifts and come that you have to be somewhat suspicious may be the wrong word but but people need to need need to prove themselves before before one begins to trust them. I, that that's the best way to put it. Trust has to be earned, and Bill hasn't yet earned the trust on any level. Mm, I think suspicion is totally correct and logical, absolutely, and particularly given the context of everything that's happened. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I found the passage. So, yeah, let's see if this if this matches up with your lived experience. So this is in Absolute okay. Madness. Catherine Pellinero, she writes, Buffalo police had in fact investigated the possibility of a link to the KKK or neo-Nazi groups. In early October, detectives Harold Frank and Matthew Parsons had traveled to Syracuse to meet with a former Buffalo resident who supplied them with information on small, a small group of avowed Klan members in western New York led by a resident of the east side of Buffalo named Carl Hand. According to the informant, a few years prior, Hand and a half dozen of his friends who were all white males currently in their early 20s had proclaimed themselves the protectors of Schiller Park, a neighborhood on Buffalo's east side. 
the group met often on a particular member's home to discuss their philosophy and talk about getting people, which meant assaulting black males. Specifically, the group had on numerous occasions attacked black males in the neighborhood and engaged in fights to protect the kids, presumably white kids, from the area blacks. The informant said that the group had been in such fights during the summer of 1980. They kept a store of KKK literature and attempted to distribute it. Uh, He never heard them talk of killing anyone, but said that about three years earlier, they had been responsible for fracturing the skull of a black male with a length of pipe in the Genesee Street Schiller Park area. Does this, do you know this area? Does this sound like she... I know this area. I know this area well. It's an area where, you know, you you, you live in a city uh, and, 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 and there's a street that will go from the white community into the black community, the black community, the white community, and all of a sudden the boundaries and the borders that were once very, you know, almost cement become less clear and that's the Schiller Park area you got East Delavan I mean I lived on Stephen Street which is a walk from East Delavan you got you got Broadway I had cousins that lived on Broadway but if you go east further you get into the Polish area the white area there's a there's a Catholic school Turner Carroll there's almost predominantly white and you had more blacks living in that area which is why when I mentioned that we were bust into Kensington I think when we came to Kensington High School, in my grade, there might have been five or six blacks out of 200 or 300 before we got bussed in. And so my high school is not that far from Schiller Park, and black kids didn't hang out in Schiller Park. You know, black people didn't hang out in Schiller Park. That was still seen as a white area, you know, almost as though we're going to fortify our area against y'all. So that makes total sense because, again, as the busing happened and Buffalo kind of rejected Buffalo, at least, it, you know, in, in practice, uh, and, and black people started moving into the suburbs, there was resistance. And this would be a manifestation of that. Strong sense of territoriality. That rings really true. Absolutely. Wow. Context of white supremacy. Mm-hmm. Not that I haven't heard it before, but wow. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. uh, Absolutely, absolutely. The uh, one of our questions we try to ask most of our guests before they uh, depart. uh, Yes, sir. Do you think white people, non-white people, who do you think is more informed about what racism, white supremacy is, how it works? Do you think white people are more informed, or do you think non-white people are more informed? I I worked I don't work at Vanderbilt anymore. I just left. I'm working at another university now, but I was there for 17 years. PhD, I was a dean and all this other stuff, blah blah blah, but the people that I got the closest to were the black cleaning people who cooked the food in the cafeteria, mowed the lawn, made the, you know, the the the, the took out the trash and all of that. I would say black working class people. They understand racism, racism and, 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 and hatred at a visceral level because they live it every day. We like to think that the intellectuals understand it because they write books about it. I would say no. 
big mama and, and brother so-and-so and sister so-and-so and the people in the barbershop and the people who are doing what they do, they understand it at a level that has to do with getting up every day and dealing with it in order to take care of their kids and their grandkids and feed themselves and do all of that. So, I, so black people, for sure. But black people, particularly of a certain subset that have to deal with the man and his laws and the unjust nature of those laws in a way that some of us have escaped. We don't, we still deal with racism. I don't care what, how many degrees you got and what you got and what you drive and where you live, but it's different when you're of a certain social economic standing and you're like my brothers and sisters at tops. But that's the only grocery store you can go to and you don't have a car and you got to walk and somebody invades. They understand it at a level that white people can't even write about because they don't understand it. My mom and daddy understood it that way, and that's what I've internalized. I hope that answers your question. Oh, for sure, for sure, for sure. And, 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 and I'll say this, and I'll say this. You know, you know who's the best example of this as I'm reading the book? Mamie Till Mobley. Emmett Till's mama understood that. She understood it, and she said when they brought her, her, her massacred child back to her, open that casket. Let them see. Because she had the choice. Close it up. No. They've turned my baby into something that he wasn't. But we need to show them this because this is who they are. She understood racism at a level that, you know, white people will never understand because they would have closed the casket and buried him even if they had given him a funeral. But no, we need to see it. So she understood it. And that's what I think those people who died in that top, they understood it. Context of white supremacy. Um, We should have, uh, within the next few weeks, uh, the author of Black Bodies in the River. That is not quite Emmett Till, but that is Mississippi, and they were going to get those two white boys uh, who died with uh, Mr. Andrew Goodman. Uh, wow. Or it's Mr. Cheney. It was Mr. Cheney. Sorry, make sure I get the name. Yeah, 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 yeah. Goodman, Swerner, and Cheney, yeah. That's right, in 64. Uh, but that book, Black Bodies in the River, there was an additional, by probably bodies, uh, that they went when they were searching for them. Uh, and they pluck body out of the water, core T-shirt. Like, who is this? This is not. Oh, this is not one of the two white boys and Mr. Cheney. Okay, throw them to the side. Keep going. Rendered invisible, but that is part of the major theme of black bodies in the river. Plural black bodies uh, in the river. But that should be on the program next month for that era of white supremacy, racism, Emmett Till, uh, etc. Uh, pretty flagrant about what is happening white supremacy racism what it means how it works i guess i will say we did have grady lewis at the beginning uh and i'll get mm-hmm. our, our listeners question before we let you enjoy your evening we had grady lewis okay. featured um in the intro and he was one of the victims even though he wasn't shot but i mean whatever he was at the grocery at the, at the tops uh may 14th mm. black male and he said that he talked to the right yes i yeah Yes, I'm familiar. Yes, yes. He said he talked to him the day before, and he said he seemed a little off, but 
you know, he gave him his, uh, I guess his keys with his discount card thing on it. So he could get whatever from the store. They came back. They talked for like two hours. Uh, he asked him, are you going to be here tomorrow and all that. Uh, and I said, wow, that's, uh, Hmm. Does it, does the Mr. Did Mr. Grady Lewis, did he seem like he had an understanding that, wow, this fella could be dangerous. We've had Joseph Christopher before. Maybe I don't need to kick it with you for two hours. Maybe I definitely don't need to give you keys. Does that, that's what I mean when I ask about, are we, do we demonstrate on a consistent basis that we understand white people are dangerous? Suspicion, what you said before, does, what do you, I don't know. What do you think about this, the Mr. Grady Lewis's interaction with the shooter? I remember seeing him interviewed, um, yes, on one of one of the news right after the, the that Holocaust, um, and I, I think it's it's a it's an interesting polarity. It's again that whole notion of two-ness. and I'm reading a lot of stuff right now on cultural trauma, and I think you understand the capacity of what they can do because we all know even if we haven't read the books like many you and I have black intellectuals, you understand because you know, because your mom and your daddy and your grandma have suffered. And you know, you know that, but we are also a loving, caring people who give someone the benefit of the doubt. And I think that's what he does there. Knowing that any one of them can do this because of, as you said, white supremacy and hatred and anti-black racism, but they gave him the benefit of the doubt in the same way that those people at, of, at Mother Mule did. Now, there's no way growing up in South Carolina where, you know, one of the citadels of the South that you don't know about slavery and racism and all of that. Like in Nashville, you drive down the street and you can see slave graveyards and you drive so far and you can see a plantation. So you understand it, but you give them the benefit of the doubt in spite of the history. And so maybe my, my question is, my answer is to cleave is to ask you this: Should we cleave more to the history than we do? Because we we know the history, even if we don't always study the history. We know the history because it's written on the backs of our parents and those that have died. But we give people the benefit of the doubt, perhaps when we should not. So that's a, it's a very complex question because you know there's two sides to it, and again, it's that Du Boisian dichotomy of Tunis. We want to be seen as American and treat them as American citizens and all that. But Du Bois says, but wait a minute now, they don't see us as an American. So how can we see them as fellow citizens and treat them as such? And we get stuck much of the time. Hey, a wise, well of, a wise fellow once told me, it's never not. Amen. Amen. Which means our guard needs to be up more, brother. I hear you. <laughs> and I would say too, just with that with that same uh, sentiment, we talked before. Like, hey, if 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 all over the land, black ass out of here, black ass out of here, black ass out of here. Like, man, like we can be really callous with other black people. Uh, we had the author of that nonviolent stuff will get you killed, which I think Buffalo should be in there too. Uh, but Mr. Yeah. Bob, he was talking about black people having, uh, needing to have a sense of being nonviolent with other black people. Uh, that that would be revolutionary, minimize a lot of our conflicts, so we could you know focus on getting this problem solved. Uh, like man, if it's gonna get black ass out of here, black ass out of here, and all the rest of it at minimum, like hey, on the memory 
of, you know, Ernest Shorty Jones, Parler Edwards, yeah. Glenn Dunn, yeah. Joseph McCoy, yeah. strange white man comes into our neighborhood. We are not fitting to hang out and talk for two hours. Like, been and we are conditioned to want that acceptance and, you know, all of that. I was The terrorism, that was it too. So many times we're in positions where we have to give white people the benefit of the doubt. They might, you know, punish us for not giving them the benefit of the doubt or not welcoming welcoming them into our sanctuary, quote-unquote, without sanctuary. They might punish us for not welcoming, uh, welcoming them in. So I think that's a, there are a lot of components to it. But again, I go back to what that wise fellow said. It is never not war. Um, and I have to say amen, amen to that because I believe that. It's never not war. Victim in New Jersey. Did you have a question for Dr. Frank E. Dobson Jr.? Wow. Hey, how you doing, um, Seth? Um, you know what? Gus uh, alluded to the question I was going to ask. Um, I was just going to respond to the uh, confusion question. Um, yes, sir. But, however, I, I'm going to ask this question because um, just the other day I asked my father, did he remember who Joseph Christopher was and he didn't. Um, so why, why do you think that this story is, um, it's not being, uh, how can I say highlighted after the, uh, Buffalo shooting? And that, that'll be my, that'll be my question. I, I think as we said, um, I do think that has some part to do with Buffalo. It's a small kind of nondescript city. It's not New York or Philly or D.C. I think the other thing is the heinous nature of it, like the, the recent shooting in Buffalo and the shooting in South Carolina that we talked about. But it's also the fact that the police department was going on a slowdown almost as though they wanted black death. There's a sense in which they seem to care. And, and, and even at the funeral of Glenn Dunn, there were white youths who came to that neighborhood and they actually taunted the people who were mourning the death of this young black boy. So I think this is a tough book for whites to look at because there is no white savior. I mean, much of the time we see stories where there is a white savior. There isn't a white savior. Indeed, it's like the whites are taunting even at the death, the solemn death of the first victim who's a child. So I think it's a tough story to make the national news because it says definitively, as, as, as Gus, my, my, my host, has said, this is the zenith of white supremacy. Look at what we have here. And the sad thing is it, it, if, you, if you bring it up, and connect it with the recent shootings in Buffalo, my hometown, you, you begin to see just how deeply ingrained it is in America, and it, it causes us to say, have things changed at, at all? Have things changed at all? I mean, what do you think? Uh, Gus, can I? Um, no, I've, I would have to think. I would have to think about okay. that okay. response. But... Now, now, uh, one more question. So you brought up the fact that they came and they taunted a dead child. So this goes back into the um, who's more confused, white people or black people. So if white people aren't confused, what would you make of that behavior? Then what could that be classified as? 
if it's not conclu- confusion when they practice racism, white supremacy, then what is it? If that makes sense. It does. It does. Um, w- one of the authors that I, I love, uh, 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 Chester Hines calls racism uh, absurdity, and it is absurd. But but this but racism is founded on absurdity because it's founded on this you know damnable incorrect notion that you're better than someone on the basis of of your skin color and your and your you know whatever else and biology and 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 so it is absurd and it is wrong but. You know, I, I don't have any other answer other than that because, again, it is absurd, and it is it, it is insanity. It's insanity. Oh, um, one one more, Gus, since he because he, he said something that was interesting about insanity. But do you think that we we as victims? we kind of give them, well, we're not giving them anything because they're in a position of power. But I've noticed uh, with guests, the whole, I mean, Gus, the host, when he invites white guests, when they describe racism, white supremacy, they're, they're either crazy and deranged or they're white extremists as it relates to defining uh, what, you know, um, what racism is. So if, if you know what I mean, so, so if, 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 we can, if, if we agree that this is more like a power dynamic, like is this really insanity? I, I, I think, it, I think it's, it's, it, 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 you can classify it as insanity if you look at the manifestations of it like, what happened at Mother Emanuel, what happened in my hometown. But, but again, you know, to quote what my friend Gus is saying, it's always war and it's never not war means that even when it seems peaceable and less violent in its manifestation and less murderous in its manifestation, it's still war and it's still racism. You know, I talked early on about the redlining of supermarkets and grocery stores in my home community in Buffalo. That's racism. And that's not insanity in the sense that that is planned, that is structural, that is institutional, and that is, that, that is, that is not, that, that is not the murder of somebody with a gun, but it's still nevertheless murder because it's inferior food, inferior meat. My sister used to shop at that grocery store. She doesn't live in town anymore. And she talked about, she said, Frankie, I never tried to shop there, only if I had to because the meat wasn't that good. So to me, that's just another example. You know, there's more than one way to kill a people. You can kill them suddenly or you can kill them slowly. So and, and the slow killing is, is, is insanity of a different kind, if you want to call it. But I would say it's simply planned, structured, institutionalized, and sanctioned. Thanks, Sid. Thanks for your, uh, your answer. Have well, thank you, Thanks, sir. Much, You're welcome. Much obliged. Uh, retired firefighter in Florida, did you have a question for uh, Dr. Dobson before he get re- gets ready to uh, depart as a uh, retired firefighter. Yes, sir. Uh, doctor, uh, if white people are more confused about racism, white supremacy, uh, why are they uh, 
uh, able to uh, maintain and refine the system of racism, white supremacy for centuries. And see, I, I don't think they're confused. I think some of us are confused, but I, I did not say that we're, we're they're confused. I, I think that there is there is insanity, there is a pathology, there is a psychopathology, but I would not say that that there's confusion because too much of it, as I said, with the redlining of the grocery stores and all of the other structural things that have happened, um, that's as you said, that's systemic, that's planned. I agree with you. And that's not confusion. That's okay. intentionality. Absolutely. It, that's intentionality. Okay. Uh, thank you for straightening it out for me. You're welcome, sir. Thank you for your question. Much obliged, uh, retired firefighter in Florida. I think we got all of our callers. Uh, the book we've been chatting up about, uh, Rendered Invisible, Stories of Blacks and Whites, Love and Death. Uh, with Dr. Frank E. Dobson Jr. Uh, he's going to Buffalo. Hopefully, I will be able to get out there to do a field trip so I can do some digging to see what else I can find. Uh, I've got a, a nice little treasure trove, but I think I can get a lot more. If I'm able to uh, get myself to the other side of the continent, I will be sure to drop you a line, see if you can recommend any folks that I should definitely try to talk to or sites to go visit, anything like that. But Man, it has been uh, a hoot being able to uh, talk to someone who actually uh, has a, a deep, personal, authentic connection uh, to the place where all of these events happened. Um, oh, man, I forgot. Uh, if you could tell us your uh, connection. Donna, you said uh, one of the, the victims who passed away, the enforcement official uh, who gave his life trying to defend the folks uh, at uh, the tops this most recent time. Uh, but the, some of the victims that you have connections to, that would be awesome, I guess, point to end on. Yeah, w one of the ladies, and I'm forgetting which one now. My sisters mentioned we went to Sunday school with her when we were kids. Um, and I'd have to look at the list of names to pick it out. And then uh, 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 Mr. Salter, the retired cop, um, was a cousin of one of my cousins. Uh, I had an Aunt Louise Salter and... He's the son of one of her children, um, so really not by marriage, so really not one of my cousins, but a cousin of one of my cousins. I guess you could say second or third or something like that, but um, yeah, those, those would be the two victims that were that were related to my family. Much obliged. Make sure we get that uh, in there. Make it people forgetting Catherine Massey, Hayward Patterson, Celestine Cheney, Andre McNeil, Marcus Morrison, Pearl Young. Geraldine Talley, Roberta Drury, Ruth Whitfield, Aaron Salter, uh, the victims of the most recent terrorism in uh, East Buffalo. Uh, much obliged for being so generous with your time, sir. Keep up the outstanding work uh, when you're able to go back and uh, be with the folks next week. Uh, enjoy, and I guess that'll still be a part of the healing uh, for everything that's going on, but we certainly will keep up our work uh, and making sure people do not uh, forget these events, uh, either from 1980 uh, or the most recent, uh, and again, doing as much as we can to put everything in context so that hopefully we can solve this problem and not have any more conversations about white killings in Buffalo or anywhere else. Thank you, sir. I, I appreciate it, and peace and blessings to you, my brother. Thanks so much. Take excellent care. Dr. Frank E. Dobson, Jr. 
Enjoy the rest of your evening, sir. You too. Thank you. Bye-bye now. Thank you, sir. Context of white supremacy. Victim of white supremacy. Guest on the program. And things did not go terribly. How about that? Love it, love it. And we will be back to Buffalo just this week, a few days from now. Uh, there's a uh, white man. I feel like this is another one they kind of should have been talking about all the time. Race, neighborhoods, and community power. Buffalo politics from 1934 to 1997. Now, folks that have been listening to the cow should be somewhat, you know, quality informed about Joseph Christopher at this point. Uh, this book goes through the exact time period when the killings are taking place. It does not mention Joseph G. Christopher at all. How is that possible? How do you have a whole book about race, so-called power, politics in Buffalo through the 1980s? Zero mention of all of this. Everything about this is written. The president got involved. Vice presidential candidates got involved. FBI task force, police slowdowns. Everything about that is politics, power, racism, neighborhoods. System of white supremacy racism. Anywho, much obliged for Mr. Dobson hanging out on the program, and hopefully it was uh, informative uh, for listeners. The book club, mandatory, uh, since people don't know about these events and we don't have proper context uh, to understand everything that happened here. Every Thursday, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific, Absolute Madness, Catherine Pellinero. Uh, even if you're not listening, uh, if you're not able to listen live or to the archives, get that book and be reading it. Uh, again, that is disgraceful uh, to have people live in New York, lived in New York at that time, live in New York now, never heard about this. Totally unacceptable. Uh, we have to get, be much more informed. And again, I submit, I think if you have more non-white people who can put all of these events in a more accurate context, we will be a lot less confused about racism, white supremacy, why these events happen, and adjusting our behavior so that it doesn't sound crazy to say, hey, Mr. Grady Lewis, that's an error. Our code we are not hanging out with some white person who seems a little off, in quotes, for two hours, giving him your keys? Like, no, absolutely not. There's a long history of white people who are a little off and then coming in causing problems when they go off, so-called. Just being more informed uh, about our enemy, especially if it's never not war and the war is being waged against non-white people, especially those classified as black, all the time, all areas of people activity. Anywho, but uh, our white guest will be here, I think that's Sunday, July 3rd. Yep, Sunday, July 3rd, he should be here. Uh, we'll be looking forward to that. Hopefully people learning about what transpired in Buffalo has been informative for our listeners. Uh, with that, uh, we'll see. Unless folks have any uh, commentary or what have you, I don't really see a whole lot of uh, hands while we were hanging out for the program. I guess folks uh, listening uh, to the dialogue. Uh, again, I was 
just thankful, uh, appreciative for Dr. Dobson's time and appreciative that we didn't have uh, catastrophe uh, on the broadcast with a non-white guest. We have that policy for many, many reasons. Uh, and man, this year especially, it, there was a long record of uh, tribulations, difficulty uh, when we have non-white guests on the program, but that did not happen today. Right on for Dr. Dobson, right on for Gus T, and hopefully we got some constructive information. Let's see, uh, Karma in Texas, uh, listening in, did you have uh, thoughts on what you heard from uh, Dr. Dobson? Yes, Gus, thank you for bringing us Dr. Dobson, and I agree with you that um, that violence of black people on white people may have been enough to make sure they said this book this book will never get out because that beat down they did when <laughs> the beat down they did towards the beginning uh, when they were kicking him and stomping him it was it was something else it was really violent so I think I agree with you on that they they would never have a a beat down on a white person like that by a bunch of black people. Secondly, um, it, it's, what did you say? It's, it's never not war. Um, just, just studying war. It does seem to be that the, the chosen war is the slow genocide just because the property transfer is so complete with with the minimum, you know, losses are minimized. So if you can do a slow genocide, and uh, and I especially, it was it was very revealing the way they did it to the Jews, how they lied to them and they cheated them and they said we're your friends and you're going to town and this is for your own protection and uh, we've made every accommodation for you and and the the genocide of the Jews was very slow at first, right? It wasn't until they realized that people were coming to slow that to stop the genocide that they just like get everybody on the train right away. And with no time for any niceties, lives are up, everybody's got to get on the train, everybody's got to get in the oven, we got to get this done. So I think what they do is a slow genocide to us so that they can maximize the property transfer, right, without having damaged buildings and, and fallout and fires and, and anything like that. They just It's just nothing but a property transfer. It's really good. obliged karma in Texas um, refinement I think that's racist man racist woman appreciate the refinement uh, of their system where you don't have to have gangs of whites going out to slaughter and kill as you said and uh, Dr. Dobson even talked about that like it, this is really war same form whether it's having no supermarkets or supermarkets with really inferior products that'll kill you. No organic produce, high fructose, corn syrup in everything. Pork rinds and Funyuns and Cheetos by the barrel. Same thing. Let you get diabetes and high, uh, high blood pressure and obesity and all the rest of it. All those, what they call it, comorbidities. Lots of those. And then, yeah, we'll just come take the property once you... In fact, might even be able to do it before you expire completely because you'll have so many health problems that you'll be, you know, 
at a medical facility or trying to worry about breathing and all the rest of it so you won't be able to manage property anyway lots of ways and just refining as we proceed anywho uh, we'll be here for the book club on Thursday 8pm Eastern 5pm Pacific uh, we will I think we're about halfway through the book or close if we're not there already just be uh, alert since it is a white reader uh, again we should be getting to some of these motivations and his conduct at the army base attacking other soldiers and allegedly even getting upset because he wet the bed one of the soldiers mocked him about this what does it mean to be white and yes from the book I don't think I've read that part for listeners the part about uh, the whites kicking and stomping on that white professor uh, but even though this is what they call what he says historical fiction and that is a genre that is very accurate there's tons of that presented in the book that we are reading uh, that's an entire chapter or more really uh, in Matt Greider's book he was already a guest on the program uh, in terms of black people counter violence during this whole period and we are not going to as they say turn the other cheek and quote a you know biblical uh, scripture as we are shot and carved up no way exactly it is never not war any white person comes around here looking strange what are you doing where's my lead pipe getting my rocks at the ready get away from around here that sort of thing no we're not going to hang out and talk for two hours get on out of here appropriate understanding of what it means to be white and absolutely I can see that as being a major reason why no we are not fixing to talk about this book at all Dr. Uh, Dobson and then like I said he has multiple scenes of black on white violence which there was a lot of uh, in retaliation in response I'll say response counter violence in response to the unchecked white terrorism uh, happening in the 1980s and 1981 in Buffalo and even right now anywho uh, much obliged for the folks uh, tuning in live archive hope it was worthy of your time and energy uh, we will be back at the minimum on Thursday then we'll be here for the rest of the week uh, if we have any programs between then just check uh, Facebook social media Black Talk Radio Network you will be informed sobriety would be best under conditions of white supremacy you never know when you are going to be in oh my goodness I have got life saving decisions to make you do not want to be under any of these white poisons and then got to make some serious decisions suddenly in addition to all of that if you're out and about you see someone being loud and hostile exit this is not the time that you want to have verbal confrontations with strangers you should be thinking this fella she could be armed might have an entourage if you didn't leave your residence prepared to kill and or die right now exit if you are in a vehicle you are sober buckled up not 
on a mobile device, uh, just doing the small things that we can to minimize contact with race soldiers, badge or no. And we need all of our attention. Joseph G. Christopher. That's it, creator. We ask that you help us remain patient with other black people, victims of white supremacy. We ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves. Remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times, in all places, each and every time we are in contact with another black person. It has been time. Replace white supremacy with justice immediately. No name calling, no gossiping, no violence with other non-white people, no reckless production of offspring. Cow signing up. Thanks all for tuning in. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, What's your brother. Problem? You're a victim. I'm a victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm -hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. <laughs>